knowing that it's more for more than you. Yeah, we should not that's do more songs, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. I was just like really confused. Have I forgotten how to read Hindi? Okay, we're going to get started. Uh, I guess our new normal is 10.30. So we have a lot as usual on our plates. Uh, we want to start with um, a report back and assessment of the 75th anniversary of, independent, of India's independence conference. We'll then hear report on where we are in planning and organizing for the 10th anniversary conference. And then we will uh, proceed to Noam Chomsky, Du Bois, and Martin Luther King. So I'll turn it over to Shambharta and uh, Purba to give us a report back and an assessment, how you saw it. Okay, maybe I can start. Um, I just wanted to begin by saying that it was really, it was really an honor to be able to do 75th anniversary celebrations here in Philadelphia with mm -hmm. the preschool, but also with the Philadelphia community. And it's something that we felt definitely needed to be done, but not just through cultural. But with a real series to try and understand, you know, what contributions, what great contributions this struggle made to the world revolutionary process, and mm -hmm. what leaders like Gandhi, but also Nehru and Indira Gandhi, they, mm -hmm. you know, they have to teach us for the present moment that we're living in. And I have to say that, you know, we imagine the conference to be a certain way, but it was way more than what we possibly could have imagined. Mm -hmm. Because on one hand, I guess, you know, one hand, it was sort of grounded on the foundation of this hard work for years the preschool has put into doing Year of Gandhi, the Azadi celebrations, the Year of the Boys reading Dark Princess in libraries ac across Philadelphia. But on the other hand, it also, you know, brought something new because of the specific conditions that we, we are living through today. And I feel like the way Doc formulated the fourth American revolution and the need for it to be rooted in the civil rights movement and as king, as a father of the American nation and mm -hmm. a new people, just like Gandhi is considered in India, really took the content of that conference from just being about the history to something that's living and breathing and which we can build on uh, today. And this is, I think, what Ram Mohan Rai really, really was impacted by, and I feel like Ram Mohan and Krishnakanta Rai's visit to Philadelphia and to the preschool and their participation and contribution to the conference was really significant. And the fact that he and Gandhi Global Family are moving closer to preschool and standing with us and you know, agreeing with the way we see the world right now is really, you know, it's, it's historical in the sense that it gives hope that a possibility now exists after a very long time for, a, a joint struggle in India and America for, you know, freedom and peace. Um, mm -hmm. And this is the tradition that that you know the Indian and Black struggle of the past represented. And there's a cha real chance right now that we might be able to come closer to it at this moment. Mm -hmm. And I think Ram Mohanji was really moved by the entire conference, mm -hmm. its content, but also you know the the fact that all these 
presentations that were made were made by people who are not indians most of them young but who treat this history with a lot of respect and with all seriousness with an effort to understand to search for answers to real problems today and how they are unafraid and they are willing to put you know their own individual happiness and individual satisfaction with life behind on a back foot and really dedicate themselves to the larger struggle for people and really make a commitment and work hard he kept saying how that how he was really moved by that and how when young people present this way it gives you a lot of hope for the possibilities that exist mm -hmm. and also i think the city of philadelphia itself impacted him deeply his trip to kensington mm -hmm. and uh, he kept telling us how you know he had imagined america to be like a paradise a heaven on earth but then now he could really see the darkness in american society the poverty and the addiction mm -hmm. and how people have been abandoned and he said that he wanted to take that darkness back to india and especially to the youth mm -hmm. and uh, you know really see everything see the indian struggle in the world context but he also said this beautiful thing that night uh, the night before he was leaving mm -hmm. that where there was darkness he also could see, see the light yes. he saw the light and to him the light comes from all the from free school and the young people in it who have such dedication and who are so brave and have made this commitment and he said that he wanted to carry that light back to india as well which i thought was really beautiful mm -hmm. um and really i mean i feel like his visit gives me personally hope that you know because in india this situation the political struggle the formulation of it has had its ups and downs and mm -hmm. it's been uncertain what direction india is going to take at this crucial juncture but this these sorts of you know partnerships and you know engagements give you hope that there is still the possibility the possibility exists and i also want to say that it was really significant that pastor keith and caroline from the church of the overcomer pastor lee and other philadelphia community members attended but also you know dr ziauddin and his brother who are really they're they're really deep deeply tied to the bangladeshi community in uh -huh. philadelphia and they really appreciated the conference and its content the people who came to perform the music of nazrul and tagore from upper darby they reached out to me later and they said that it felt great to be a part of something this huge and they wanted to come back and same goes for the pen pen students the really young pen students who performed at city hall mm -hmm. and uh, yeah that is why i'm saying that the i've been left with an overwhelming sense of optimism after the conference and uh, i really can't overemphasize how it was everything we had imagined but so much more and it was really a privilege to be a part of it mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, um, I totally agree with you know what Pooja is saying regarding how we had an understanding of how the conference is going to be and how we think about it today. I I think I've been thinking about the conference like you know it's like we had like we have had three conferences. We had imagined and you know planned for one, um, and you know that was something in mind. And then like you know, during the conference, it was a different sort of experience because this was the first time. That we have been doing something like this, and it feels very different to be a part of a conference like this as opposed to to, to you know watching it with some distance. Mm -hmm. And then I, 
the entirety of this last week we have been been thinking and and going back and watching the conference and i think the way it turned out yeah it it, it really ties up a lot of the things that we have been talking about for years in preschool and also like you know throughout the year in the reading group and in preschool and i think how we started the conference especially with you know serafina's presentation that was really moving because you know it, it starts mm -hmm. with with this unity between the indian and the black struggles and you know how this is a historical uh like you know, this is a historical movement the fact that these connections had been had had been built and and you know were in the process of being built for decades and mm -hmm. it was disrupted at some point and what we're trying to do now is really to go back and understand it so that we can reinterpret for our times. I think this was a really moving uh, start to the conference. And throughout um, you know, all the presentations that we have had over the three days, it really brought out the significance of looking at the Indian struggle now. And you know, like we have been talking about it before the conference, I think it's it's really important to keep going back to understanding this that it's not it's not the same as the celebration of india's independence which is going on all over the country i mean all all over america and in india like in lots of people have been celebrating it in terms of you know taking i guess hoisting a flag or these cultural performances uh, i think even the embassies in new york and dc they have also been involved in these celebrations but you know that's the thing i think we can't really look at the Indian struggle and India's independence in this vacuum in America without going to its organic roots. The fact that you know throughout the conference this was brought out that the Indian struggle close to 60, 70 years, like in you know, over 70 years back, actually close to 100 years back, it did influence the black struggle to a great extent. And you know, we are at a point where the black struggle has a lot to contribute to India as well at this point. The fact, you know, the fact that I mean, what Purva was saying that you know Ram Mohanji did make this comment multiple times about how you know, he he has I think he is in the process of undergoing a great change from his visit to the conference and and Philadelphia and in in a larger context I think this shows how the black struggle and the free school is in a position to guide. Um, not just america but also india and i think this is a profound thing which we need to keep going back to and you know understand the relevance of what we are doing for the world i don't think it's i don't think it's a it's just a gesture the fact that you know Ramon, he visited and we had all of these sort of you know performances and these these you know symbolic uh, exchange of gifts and so on and so forth. I think in hindsight, it does carry a lot of meaning, which which will which you know we will be interpreting throughout. And also the other thing I wanted to say was you know regarding yeah regarding the the cultural performances and the fact that you know we have not just had people who have come in for the performances this time, but we also had people coming in from previous years like you know Ramya who performed on thursday she and and the way she spoke to us the way she spoke to me it was not like she was speaking to a stranger who she doesn't know she said that you know oh it's good to see you guys after two years <laughs> and that's the thing like you know she sees the continuity of the preschool even though she's not really you know, a part of preschool but i think it shows that the city sees what the preschool has been doing for years they don't see 
individuals as you know as just strangers they see all of us as part of of you know this collective which is doing some important work for the city and and you know for the world at this time i think it yeah it gives me a lot of hope to be a part of we yeah, are to be a part of preschool but also to be a part of of the conference which brought out all of these you know uh, i mean yeah, all of these forces from the city yeah uh and well i mean i think there is uh like i could talk about the the presentations for hours but yeah i, I think like it was really it was really beautiful how uh how you know all the different parts of the conference i mean it it turned out very different from what i had thought initially maybe but the fact that uh for example the the panels on saturday and you know it it really brought out what we are trying to do what what we're trying to talk about why we want to study the indian struggle at this point and why do it in america and the especially the presentations uh in in the peace movement panel the one by catherine and emily i think that really shows the significance of looking at the indian struggle today and also what it meant at that point i mean the entire point of of looking at the Indian struggle is to interpret what the peace movement of our times can look like. And it's important to you know go back to this history and understand these figures. And yeah, I was really moved by the presentations that you know brought these figures to life. I think it's important for people to see that you know these were ordinary people who were capable of achieving um of you know, achieving what seems to us extraordinary acts by a life of principled action and thought. And yeah, I, I yeah, I'm very grateful to have to you know be learning from all of these historical figures, but also from all people in free school because yeah, everyone is is a teacher, I think. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's 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 been great great to learn from all all the panels. Um, yeah, that's what I thought. I, I, yeah. me, I forgot to say that we have a guest, and not a guest, but a person who's here for the first time, Naya. It's studying at the University of Illinois in physics, right? Biology. 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 Oh, I'm sorry. But uh, welcome. And uh, Joe, if you wish to say something, and Nia, if you wish to. Yeah, I was going to say something. Uh, short, but um, uh, obviously agreeing with everything that was said. I mean, it was a huge. Uh, I think it has a huge symbolic and substantive value. Everything that went on, and uh, definitely uh, Ram Mohanji was himself was very impressed and moved and has been, was uh, relaying everything via social media and otherwise to his various close contacts in India and throughout South Asia. Um, and also, I wanted to say that he he um, said that he really wants to um, print a booklet of the conference of all the presentations, um, and he wants to. He's he's returning to India from the U.S. on the 21st, so he would like that to be uh, sent to him by then, so that he could send it to his contacts and have meetings with his contacts when he arrives to discuss what happened. So I would I just wanted to ask everyone who 
gave a presentation if you could please send me your <laughs> presentation for this book i'm i'm coordinating it with him but i want to repeat that to everybody um but also i wanted to say he, he, he even before that he's been um he just sent me sent some of us last night that he yeah. wrote up a short article in hindi on um uh, some of the stuff i think it was mostly about dogs right dogs yeah the city hall part he wrote an, an article and uh the rest of it also he's been covering on his social media he actually spent a lot of time on facebook summarizing in hindi the different presentations given by all the panelists and i mean i can go into a we can go into a lot of detail of how much he was impressed by every single presentation how much and yeah he kept repeating this thing on and on that the fact that all these mostly non-indian non-south asian people talking about all these great figures has such an immense value for people in india and south asia especially the youth who've gone away from this and uh, i mean I, it confirms everything we've been saying about the ideological struggle about giving an alternative um and yeah I, everything has a lot of significance that we do not just for philadelphia but even internationally mm -hmm. the people recognize the significance of this and the prestige and the moral authority of the black freedom struggle Mm -hmm. Would you like to say something? Uh, I want to start with actually Monday's when Doc. I wanted, to, yeah, I I wanted to thank Doc for taking us around to Kensington. I'd like to start with that because I think it, in a way, uh, made as a student who comes to study in a university in the U.S., mm -hmm. you go around like leading your life without even recognizing or seeing the actually American society mm -hmm. uh, in the with all its contradictions mm -hmm. uh, you end up being in a bubble where you you're just focused on uh, on your own aspirations and you have sort of like a very sanitized view present to you which uh, which takes like which would uh, not like i i think i appreciate the indian government indian state more now that i've been here mm. and i've seen what american society has uh, has in terms of the problems that it has mm -hmm. to deal with uh, because uh, going back to the conference i think the conference laid out the ideas that the struggle produced and then the state that emerged out of that those ideas of struggle and, and the struggle that preceded it and how it had an impact on the world. I think that ties back very concretely to what we see today. Mm -hmm. And I think that connection I wouldn't have made had I not been to Kensington that day and had Doc not explained all the all the things leading up to the situation that we see today. And it sort of concretely like lays out the crisis that we keep talking about, mm -hmm. uh, which which I had no way to connect to but i would just like listen to it but i think now i understand what the mm -hmm. crisis means the social the political crisis mm -hmm. and i think i think that was one of the major things that i think i learned from the conference yeah. uh, the other thing is yeah i i really appreciate how welcoming the preschool has been so one more time, i'm saying uh, i appreciate how welcoming the preschool and the members have been like i feel I don't feel like I'm like uh, because I'm attending it for the first time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I 
Cynthia, would you like to say something? And maybe you could reflect on your parents attending. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do that to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that my, yeah, I think when we were driving from Mohan Rai uh, to through Grace Ferry, he remarked that how um, terrible the roads were. Yeah. And then also at, at the dinner before he left, he had, had made a comment about how uh, he sees India in a different light because he's seen how terrible America really is. And I think my mom has said something similar when she immigrated here in the 80s, mm -hmm. where you just think that um, the roads are paved with gold or something yeah. in other countries, and it's, yeah. it's not. And um, but my, my mom has also said that Americans have a big part and they're joyful and gregarious, very friendly. Um, and that's, you know, there are positives to the way that, you know, uh, other countries see us. And, um, and uh, yeah, my, my mom and I were upset that my dad asked that question about. Could you all repeat what you just <laughs> said? No, but he was playing, wasn't he? He wanted to was serious. Your mom said that she was going to beat him up and he called going home. And that was serious too. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, there, there are no further comments. <laughs> no further. Uh, well, one further comment is that, yeah, the ideas, my dad was really enthralled by the ideas in the town hall that everybody was putting down. Mm -hmm. I think that was a great thing for you. If your parents can, can be not drawn into this and they learn a great thing this this is this this is a social consciousness that your family can appreciate. Mm. This is the this is the this is the the matter of if you're going to be able to work with this thing for your lifetime. Mm -hmm. This is your lifetime, Miss Ray. I don't think you're wrong. Yeah. I don't think that my my dad is surrounded by intelligent people because <laughs> he's a business leader and he's a scientist. And so he can talk to intelligent people anytime he wants. But he was really impressed with Dr. Siyahuddin. He was really impressed with Jerome. Um, he was really impressed with every, you know, um, they'd already met Catherine, but they remembered Catherine. And they just enjoy speaking to everybody because it's uh, another level. It's even though they are um, exposed to intelligent people, they're not exposed to ideas like this. Well, uh, let, me, let me just say something, then we could, could go around. You know, um, <clears throat> I was, uh, it was a very impressive event. And I have to say to Shumbarta and Portaba and uh, Joe and the other people that worked with them, congratulations. I, I think the impact on the city will be felt for some time. Um, the events like this, don't just go by the wayside, they have their own life. And uh, there were those who were there and there were those who were watching. Oh, yeah. just gonna talk about you. Oh, no. <laughs> um, 
and people who came who expressed to me very deeply how it impacted them and how they felt about it. As you know, brother, <clears throat> excuse me, brother Jerome Muhammad is a Muslim. He's very religious, very devout. And he called me and among other things, he said how impressed he was. Um, he doesn't show it well in person, wow. I didn't think. <laughs> but anyway, that's Jerome. We've been around wow. for a long time together. But he said, and these are his words, that the free school is God inspired. Mm -hmm. That, um, you know, uh, and for him, a, a person who's been around, a member of the Nation of Islam, uh, so many campaigns, so many activities, mm -hmm. you know, they see a lot. And for them to say that this was special yeah. is not a small thing. Um, so I was checking in with everybody, uh, Dwight, Murph again, and, and I'm, I'm very interested in the responses of black folk, because in a city like this, in a nation like this, what black people do could be decisive. And we can, we're, going, we're going to talk about that in a while. Uh, and the fact that you made the Indian independence struggle recognizable to people who don't know that much about it, let us say, but know about the black struggle. So they saw this conference and what you all did through their own life, lives, it's life experiences and through their, their struggle. And it was very important. It was very skillfully done. It was very, politically sophisticated and it can't be underestimated. And uh, there's a lot more to be said about uh, how you all worked. And, um, you know, for people, it's like you've been in this city all the time, <laughs> you know, um, not road bumps or whatever did not deter you the uh, reach out to the mayor's office. Uh, people say, well, why, you know, you had it at the city hall, so what? Well, not so what. We had it at the Church of the Advocate and at city hall. We had it in the life of the city. And what that, what the event at city hall is saying, this is important for the American people, for our people to embrace the Indian independence movement. So yes, City Hall, the culture of India, the dance of South Asia, actually, the dance, the poetry, <laughs> the documentary on Nehru. I mean, everybody is impacted by such events. Um, that's one thing I wanted to say. Um, I spoke to Denise, uh, by the way, Serafina, everybody was so impressed with your presentation, mm -hmm. with the high bar that you set for yourself mm -hmm. and you accomplished it. And congratulations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh -huh. 
like I said to Johan, I said, I'm glad I'm not the only one being given an award. <laughs> being, being praised and congratulated is not an easy thing to accept. So I say it to you. I'm going to give him one of those hats and put, <laughs> to put, to put a thing around, a shawl around you. I'd rather just be one of the people in the crowd clapping for people being being given awards than to be given an award. I'm saying it's not, and I said that to Joe. Man. <laughs> so I was so glad he, you got yours and took that weight <laughs> off of me. But anyway, Denise, very impressed. And everyone knows Denise comes to Azadi, but she doesn't, oh, I don't know if I come to preschool, I don't know, but she came and was very impressed. Lamar. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to talk about you. I'm going to put some respect on your name, too. <laughs> but he, he, you know, I, I've known Lamar. We've known each other for some time. And when we did the year of Gandhi, he told me, he was so excited about us doing that because he had studied uh, Ahusa and Satagraya. Yeah, yeah, in college. And, and uh, those ethical moral foundations remain with him. Mm -hmm. And he told me how impressed he was. I, I think I mentioned Dwight called me mm -hmm. and he was very impressed. And I say this because I, these people, these people that I'm mentioning, they don't go out of their way to congratulate anything. They're very skeptical. Mm -hmm. You know, life has kind of taught them that. Um, so in just getting, you know, this feedback and how deep it was and how uh, passionate it was expressed, said to me that we touched something very deep, not only in the souls and minds of people who were here, but in the city. Of course, Pastor Keith and Pastor Caroline, uh, is, this is not a small matter. People don't have to come out on a Friday evening. Uh, you know, and many people don't these days. Uh, I, I think just one other thing, and that is the ongoing ideological struggle. We'll return to this when we uh, deal with Noam Chomsky. Mm -hmm. Um, young people who see the possibility of a future and are prepared to fight for it. This is not what young people, especially like Naya said, you know, you're studying physics or biology or chemistry and getting PhDs. Uh, well, why don't you just go on your way and get a job and make money and uh, serve the existing system? Why are you like Shabar to, oh, <laughs> I got Shabar to, you know, I just, you know, when I first met him, uh, Doc, I have a postdoc at Princeton. I go there every day oh, and so on and so forth. Now, now I talk to Shabar to, I go there two days a week and I feel like very I don't go there if I don't feel like it, so what? <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and put it in the same way. 
to have re-anchored your lives in what is your history and to fight to understand your history, which is supposedly, is supposed to be erased. That's not what you're supposed to be concerned about in this country. Uh, you're supposed to be so impressed and so grateful and so uh, just everything that uh, uh, the only thing that means something is that, oh, the white world. And that's why, you know, the trip, you know, with Naya and um, Ramahan Rai and uh, um, Joe and Swati, when we went over there and to see, and this is what is so dramatic, I think, that 80% of the people walking the streets in Kensington and shooting drugs are white and young, 20s and 30s for the most part. And obviously, although not all, obviously people from the suburbs, which means that the crisis is general and all-encompassing. And I think Ram Mohan Rai understood everything that he was seeing, mm -hmm. you know, and to see this nightmare after this great celebration was uh, an education. Mm -hmm. And we spent about three or four hours because we didn't just stay in Kensington. I, I was trying to show him, first of all, the color line mm -hmm. and how there were parts. I would say, well, black people live here now, but 50 years ago, they couldn't live here. Mm -hmm. And with suburbanization, uh, white people moved away from the city and these houses became available. And I showed him, you know, the period of the great optimism, these great houses that were built, some in West Philly, but going up North Philly. And then we went to a very uh, beautiful part of the city. Um, and uh, Joe asked me, Doc, you ever thought about living up here? I said, no, I didn't, because and uh, what anyway? <laughs> not yet. Not yet. But, but I said, but you can think about it. You know that part of West, <laughs> that part of West Mount Erie and Chestnut Hill. It's very nice. It's very nice. And how, at the same time, it represented a class division mm -hmm. among Black folk. We talk, you know, Naya talk, you know, and uh, I understand that Swati. And Naya had to, when they got back, or when Naya got back, she had to take a a, a nap, a sleep. It was so, uh, emotionally. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to see, and and the thing, one of the things that we, and I'm going to stop talking, but one of the things we established or tried to talk about is a it's a difference between being poor and having not been poor and collapse into the into poverty. And this is directly related to the policies of the American ruling class. And that is the American story that Ram Mohan Rai has to tell. And, and probably a lot of people are not gonna believe him. No, this can't be true. Oh, he just took you to the worst parts. No, you know, that type of thing. 
but um, but he'll have to find a way. Uh, and I think he concluded that as, as difficult as it might be in India, this is far worse. This is far worse. Um, the whole question of democracy, what democracy when people are living like this? You know, young people, many college educated on the streets openly shooting drugs. And he saw it. He saw it with his own eyes. And Naya and Swati, you know, like Naya said, we're in this bubble of the university of postdocs. We don't have to, and we're not supposed to see it, you know? But now, so yeah, that, that's all I wanted to say. But anybody, anybody else? I wanted to quickly say because Fati was messaging me and uh, she's she's saying that she misses everybody and yeah. she's watching the live stream uh, right now for the first time, I think. But she says that the conference was very inspirational and she's grateful that she got to know everybody at free school mm -hmm. and was very enriched by the experience. Um, and yeah, I just like just like Neha was saying when she got back from that trip, you could see, I mean, this is also how Shambhartu and I was my our reaction to this was also the same um it just changes you and makes you like you know this this i think a lot of indians in america young people who come for education to go to colleges and universities really have to struggle against whiteness um that's really a big struggle because you're pulled in right from the get-go and then you have to really struggle against it and for people who have been successful at that, for some extent, it gets really lonely and depressed. And I think Swati mm. feels a little isolated in Boston, but mm. that is why an experience like the free school and a conference of this uh, proportion is that much more significant and enriching um, because it gives you hope that, okay, no, you, you were right all along to reject this uh, and you see what it has gotten this society to. Yeah. yeah. I also wanted to quickly just add that, you know, mm -hmm. Meghna, Nandita and Raju, they couldn't physically be present at the conference, but everything we did, every part of the formulation for all of this came from the collective work that we've been doing for one and a half years, reading together. And whenever we read the Indian freedom struggle, we read the Black freedom struggle because they're inseparable. You can't really understand one without the other. So I just wanted to say that we really missed them. Yeah. They were definitely a part of it all in spirit. I just want to say one thing. The students like y'all, so I, I've been working in the 70s and the 80s and going on through the 90s. But the one thing the students I always met, the phenomenal is that they all came to Philadelphia. I might have been in the Islamic Center, I might have been on campus at Temple, but the students, they all came here and they could address the things they went back home. The, the things they saw here in, in the 70s, uh, and students from the University of Penn I've been with, and they all could still see the things I saw you know, about my neighborhood, about our community, what Tony speaks about North Philadelphia before they decided they was gonna take the whole city from us. But the students like yourself I met from India, from Pakistan, and students I met from, um, from, um, from I met students from, from Yemen, Afghanistan, 
and, the, and they all wanted me to come back to go to come to visit them. But what they learned here, they could go back home. Hillside Liberation Army students, I was with students back, and I was in my twenties. But the courageous thing about what y'all doing and and holding up this tremendous um, liberation forces that y'all have gathered and y'all and, and galvanized it to it, it's, it's this is something. This this is the thing I've been looking for and keep on not closing my eyes like I don't want to understand young people. I don't want to understand the conditions that have been posed to to each of y'all. And and what I heard last weekend, that was crystallization of it. You know, you know, it's not easy getting other voices from other people to collaborate. What is this Indian consciousness? What is this consciousness that Tony preserves even here in Fort Dumpy? Because otherwise, uh, you could, we man, we might scout the whole city and right now find this consciousness so available. You know, without this effort, and y'all put y'all producing a great effort and, and to not say that this is not important that's like saying what do you think i mean i'm 70 years old mm -hmm. i had to try to find a condition for my life to still say i still want to be in this mission mm -hmm. if it brings me to the church of an advocate or wherever i got to go to meet other human beings that they timidly mm -hmm. don't want to find this message and it's loud and it's crystal clear so go ahead, uh, Jim. Oh, no, I, I just want to read uh, Ramahan Rai's comment. <laughs> it's uh, brief, but he says, we're very much impressed by this event and learned many things, thankful to the, thankful to the Saturday Free School. Um, it, yeah, and, and I think um, for me, like, briefly, like the, what I learned from the event was really like we're trying to like this idea of we want to send a message both to the people of Philadelphia but even to the people of India as well mm -hmm. and um I think Ramahan Rai's visit and getting to know him was mm -hmm. both it was just lovely because he's um he's simultaneously a very like warm and like very like open person but also mm -hmm. like he's also lived through a lot through India's mm -hmm. struggle which I, I didn't know until actually getting to talk to him more. And it was even really interesting to hear like uh, Neri and I had the chance to have lunch with him uh, and Krishna and uh, Jahan and uh, even hearing him talk about like how like even like during the years of Indira Gandhi's leadership, there were more uh, positive and fruitful relationships with like countries like North Korea. And stuff like that. That was, it was very interesting to hear. And, um, and I think, Part of the, the way that I'm processing it is that as, as Doc was saying, it's like through, it's almost like through seeing like a country, like whether it's America or Philadelphia itself through the eyes of someone like Ramahan Rai, mm -hmm. you begin to understand your own situation better. You understand the gravity of it, like the gravity of the challenge that we mm -hmm. face and the responsibility that we face, but also at the same time, you appreciate the the positives as well. The the things that we that we do have, which are to I don't know, I guess our assets or you know the things that we can carry forward. And um, and yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to I think continuing the the relationship because um, yeah, I think it was it was just very nice to hear him say like, oh yeah, I want to bring this message to because I have contacts all across the subcontinent and yeah, like I. 
I um I didn't I think fully appreciate like what that relationship signified until uh, he actually came here and we were able to to talk to him more. Um, yeah. Yeah, something similar was I was immediately at City Hall shocked. Someone to Jeremiah, like I think I was just shocked at how much Ram Maharaj could see because I think we're so used to being like, why does it sometimes feel like when free school is sending out a message of unity, pulling from the past, talking about how it has relevance for now and the future, sometimes it feels like it's like dragging a donkey up a hill. Wow. <laughs> but actually, Rama right immediately when Doc was like, Doc started pivoting into like the fourth American revolution, like let me talk to the Indians about like America's situation and what it could show you about India. Like, and then when you talked about, you said like that really dramatic line where you're like, and King, but we're lucky to have a Mahatma too, King. Yes. And yeah. the person who immediately like, clearly something clicked and gasped with Ramahan Rai because you could see him on his chair being like, and he, he knew what you were saying when you said like, King is our father, like just like Gandhi is the father of your nation and you're still working so hard to reclaim that, like reclaim that spirit. We have a father of a new nation too. And I think I started realizing for me, I think that was the most significant part of all three days of the conference was I was shocked at how much having Ramahan Rai and Krishna there mm -hmm. impacted me in like, because Ramahan Rai, when he was talking about Kensington, he actually said it's what you were saying, Purple, but he said it kind of really specifically, or at least the way Jahan was translating it. Mm -hmm. He said the darkness yeah. of the darkness of America made me like see the light of my country. Right. 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 It invoked something in him where he was like, actually, there's so much in my own country that I love. Mm -hmm. It was almost him yeah, processing. He said things. seeing the darkness made him love his own country. He missed home. Yeah. Like he was like, it made me miss home. But it was interesting because actually, I think the presence of Ram Mohan Rai at the conference, interestingly, it actually made me love America more. <laughs> like, no, like actually, it makes you like all, like even Kensington, the struggles, mm -hmm. all the struggles, like the deep BS we're in, it makes you appreciate your people more mm -hmm. and how it shapes like. It shapes like I don't know. It like invokes something in you where you're like, yeah, Americans they can be so like rude. They've been so like down. Like they've been so put down by the ruling class. All this stuff, but they're so funny. They have such a like spirit. And like all of our like like yeah, same. Someone feels Samir saying about his parents being like, yeah, Americans are really like warm and funny people. And some of it I feel like has to be shaped by, you know, all the like stuff like people have had to go through because of the ruling class, the wars, the poverty, the contradictions, mm -hmm. everything. And I thought that was like the really beautiful thing about having Ram Mohan Rai be here. And, and also I feel like validated to me that the way free school is starting to really get clear on like this message of like that specifically it's like the black struggle, it's black America, which is America and has defined America the most, that that's the like key to being able to unlock a certain like crisis. Because because mm -hmm. I almost feel like this is something Doe actually says about South Korea too, where he's like, the most sinister thing about being in South Korea is you don't, you ask yourself, you, you start being placated by saying like, oh, things are okay, right? Because the white man's not here. But then you don't realize that the white man's already in your mind. Yes. Yep. And it's the same thing with India, where I feel like something got invoked in Ramaharai too. We're seeing Black America, like 
and then the way Black America lets you see like the contradictions of real mm -hmm. society, uh -huh. it makes you start like feeling also getting to know India better and like what needs to be unlocked, reclaimed, like mm -hmm. all this stuff. And I feel like there's something about, to me, it kind of confirms something Free School has been talking about these past weeks, leading, especially like in the mindset for the 10th anniversary, which is that like, there's something about specifically about Black America that gives you the ability to identify the enemy clearly, like both domestically for Americans, like I really believe for like Americans, white, black, whatever, and then also for India, for South Koreans, for like people of the world. Um, and I feel like it's related to, it's gonna, I think it's related to our later conversation about Chomsky, Du Bois, mm. King, but mm. I was really moved by that aspect of the conference. Like, I feel like it was, because you can't, and then also you can't watch that Nehru, Nehru documentary mm -hmm. and hear him like talk about, just so clearly talk about what's wrong, who the enemy is, the, like what the path forward has to look like, what we have to avoid like falling into all those traps. You can't like hear that and just like, you can't hear that and be like, oh yeah, and Chomsky's the greatest intellectual ever. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's something about all these traditions that like clarify the work, that, the ideological work that has to be done. Like how there's something very key um, that allows you, once you can like study these people, learn these people, hear how they're speaking, it like unlocks something and giving you the clarity you need to know like who is the enemy? Like the enemies are the profiteers of war, racism and poverty altogether. So yeah, that's why I'm thankful for the conference because it was so deep. Like it was just so deep having Ram Mohan Rai there, having Doc talk, you talk to him and, and the everything all together, like all of the presentations, the performances together, like even the dinners and lunches we were having together all around this like interlinking of India and the US. Mm -hmm. I guess the last thing is City Hall really reminded me of the World Peace Council, mm -hmm. the US tour, the World Peace Council tour mm -hmm. across the US mm -hmm. because it felt beautiful because it was like Doc as a representative of Black America <laughs> and also a representative of free school and a representative of America basically and the representative of Philadelphia, like shaking hands with like Ramahan Rai, a representative of like an India that's being reclaimed, like of South Asia. And it reminded me of the way the World Peace Council and Ramesh Chandran would like receive the keys of the city. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really beautiful. Anyone else? Yeah, I wanted to say, I mean, uh, he was definitely very moved by this thing of the king, Martin Luther King as a Mahatma. And actually, Sarah gifted him a beautiful sketch of Martin Luther King. But he, you know, he was sharing on Facebook was the, uh, the second Mahatma, Martin Luther King. And that has a, I mean, King uh, has such a huge still impact left to give to the US and to the world. And, um, the more we understand the contradictions facing this society, the more we see that. I mean, I'm thinking about that after Kensington, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I think more and more the mass of this country are hungry for some kind of vision, for King's vision. Um, so yeah, it's good that we, we brought that out. And uh, even, yeah, even for City Hall, it's good that we, I mean, it was a great struggle, I think, to get to be there, <laughs> but it's good that we fought to be there. <laughs> we fought, we're fighting against a lot of their bureaucracy and stuff to be there, <laughs> but we were there with this message.
If no one else has anything to say, uh, perhaps we'll move on to our next point and then I'll turn it over to Emily and Sophina and Michelle. We uh, are planning for the 10th anniversary where we are and so on what the plan is. Yeah, I'll start and then maybe Sophina can go on with it. But we, so the 10th anniversary is um, going, is planned for the end of September. Um, and I'll go through the specific date, dates in a few seconds, but the title of the 10th anniversary is Knowledge and Recapturing the Revolutionary Spirit for Our Time, Celebrating the 10th Anniversary of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. And for us, we talked a little bit about it um, in previous updates, but I think it's even more, I think, apparent after the India conference, which is why I think it's really beautiful that the 75th anniversary of India's independence came right before the 10th anniversary of free school. Um, but for us, we didn't want it to just be a historical retrospective of like, here are all the conferences we did. And like free school has done mm -hmm. so many conferences and events. Mm -hmm. But for us, we wanted it to be a statement in this time of crisis that we believe in a future. It's like what you just said, Doc, that we believe in a future and we see the future and we're willing to fight for it. Um, and so the 10th anniversary, which is the last two weeks of September, mm -hmm. it'll be about us presenting like, there is a sky and here's what the future has to look like. Um, here's what we believe the future looks like. Here's and start discussing like what does the path to the future look like. Um, and we've talked about it already before, but specifically like when we talk about the future, it's about like how this current crisis in particular affects children and young people today, children and youth. Um, but I think that's all for context I'm going to give. But I just want to briefly walk through the program because. That's the main thing that we've been working really hard on um, all these past months as we've met every Sunday is thinking about the program and thinking hard about like what specifically we want to say with each day. Um, but the first day will be Friday, September 23rd. So that's the first day and it'll be in the evening. Um, the different venues will be anywhere from the Church of the Advocate, the Church of the Crucifixion, um, Oh, and the Asian Arts Institute, sorry. Mm -hmm. But the first day, Friday, September 23rd, will be the um, opening day, but it's, it's entitled Saturday Free School, Our Uncompromising Faith in the Future. So that's framing, like, we believe in the sky. Um, so it'll be a panel introducing this um, idea, like I said, of we believe in a future um, and we're willing to fight for it. And it'll lead into a screening of the documentary King in the Wilderness. And so it'll be a comprehensive like evening where we have a panel of people discussing the future as an introduction to King and King in the Wilderness and then um, a Q&A all together. The next day, Saturday, September 24th is titled Pedagogy for the Moral, Spiritual and Political Education of Children and the Youth. So like the title suggests, it's focused on the children, the crisis of children and the youth, um, as well as like what this, what does the um, political, moral, spiritual education of children that youth look like? And that even the idea that we have to have a political, moral, and spiritual education of the youth and children. And that they have to be protected, they have to be lifted up, they have to be educated if we even want a future in the country. Um, well, there will also be a screening of the documentary on James Baldwin, Price of the Ticket on that day. 
with a discussion about how Baldwin's life, his ideas, um, him as an example, what that says about um, a pedagogy for children and youth in, the, in these times. Next day, Sunday, September 25th. Uh, yeah, there'll also be panels. Um, the following day, Sunday, September 25th, is titled Africa, Asia, Afro-America, The Global Struggle for Peace and Democracy. Um, and that's our event that we're gonna have at the Asian Arts Initiative. But specifically, um, we were thinking of taking the time to talk about African revolutionaries in particular. Mm -hmm. um, them not as just African revolutionaries, but the way they made a historic contribution to the whole world, the world peace movement, um, how they're connected to Afro-America, to Asia, um, and spending time on that. But Serafina has been doing a lot of research on Lumumba, um, Marion Ngawabe, um, all the, Madiba Keita, all these names that a lot of people really don't know, like even in the world movement, but they made an immense contribution and they need to be remembered um, for these times. Um, so that was the first weekend. Second weekend, um, the Friday, September 30th, will be when we start getting into a lot of what we've been talking about these past weeks in preschool. Um, part, the first half of that Friday is titled, is titled W.E.B. Du Bois and the American Revolutionary Process, um, where Doc will start, we'll talk about a scientific synthesis of Du Bois and Lenin and Henry Winston. Um, and then in the evening will be titled The Struggle for the Emergence of a New American People, the Futuristic, the Futuristic Vision of Martin Luther King Jr. and James Baldwin. And this is related to, this is really related to the conversations we've been having at free school about, especially influenced by Nuri's reading on Baldwin about the last white nation, um, a new nation that there is, that King and Baldwin were, were confident in the emergence of a new people. Um, and then finally, the last day of the whole 10th anniversary is that Saturday, October 1st, um, where we will talk about how the future is ours to win. And we will have time to pay tribute to people who have been pivotal to free school. So Henry Nicholas, Jamie Blackwell, um, Puji, Muhammad, Munchi, and Glenn Ford. And then we'll end the whole, Pastor Renee, and we'll end the whole conference with a three-hour um, inter-civilizational concert. Jazz, dance, like Korean dance, Indian dance, African dance. We'll have singing, um, different civilizations singing. Um, so, and some of the details of the program are may change, but I think we feel pretty confident that for the most part, this is the essence of our program. Um, and then you want to talk Serafina about other dates? Well, as of now, we're still reaching out to people who we want to um, partner with, like the Episcopal Diocese and um, people of the of City Hall. And <coughs> I don't really have much else to add, though I will say that this, or to repeat, like, this event, um, it's kind of like in both ways. It'll be like a landmark, yes, of um, kind of 
saying that the free school and people in the city have a vision um, for moving forward, but it doesn't end with just like this event. All of these questions that we have, that we're proposing, all these things that we're saying um, are still in its process of evolving. And um, what we're offering to people of the city is a way to connect to these, this worldview that the free school really has. The, that's the point of the documentaries, the point of the concerts. It's not, we're moving further from just being able to talk mm -hmm. about these ideas and express to people, but we're trying to connect deeply with um, human beings. Mm -hmm. And so that's why Doc has been working so hard on the mission statement. And he'll talk about that now. <laughs> <laughs> but unless Michelle has other things to add. No, I got nothing to add. I just want to hear you read the vision. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah, we've been working very, very oh, hard. But also, I wanted to say that I, no, but this is my, this is me just saying, like, I admire everybody that I've been working with mm -hmm. for this um, event that, we're, that is really going to be important and that, like, it wouldn't happen at all without all of what we have done, all of what the conferences in the past or recent have accomplished and everything, every week that we've been meeting, not only on Saturdays, but the work that everybody has been putting in, in their own reading, you know, clubs and events and things have made an impact. Everything that people have done in the free school means something and have made an impact. Everyone has a role. And I think that without anybody, um, this would never happen at all. And so I just appreciate everybody. And I think everyone's so smart and talented and everything. I really do. I like, I'm so like happy to be a part of this because I would be nothing without you guys. And so I just wanted to say that free school and the city wouldn't be anything without free school. So um, I'll just add that. Yeah, and I, I think you know, what, what we realized as we organized this, and it's not been easy because we're trying to uh, understand not just what we celebrated, what we've done in celebrating that, but to celebrate a future. Yeah. And this is why a big part is that the day, the first Saturday, where we deal with the pedagogy, the ways of educating children and youth mm -hmm. and if we one of the things we talked about is as we go forward to publicize this we want to say to the people of the city of philadelphia that there is a way forward mm -hmm. we can educate children and youth and children are as important a political uh, group as our youth and older people that children are not just uh, yeah, or empty receptacles and you just tell them things. Mm -hmm. That children have consciousness and they can be activists and be fighters for freedom. And that's what, and children and youth. So, um, you know, one of the things that we, we have to do in our organizing for this is reach out to schools, to, uh, Reverend Lee's camp to families to bring their children mm -hmm. to this event. 
And one of the reasons we wanted to have a lot of documentaries is that so people can see and not just hear, they can look at Martin Luther King. And I, I think we're putting together a documentary of these African leaders, Lumumba, Kwame Nkrumah, Amilcar Gabral, uh, Marion Nguabe, uh, Modiba Keita. And what people don't really know is that these are not just independence fighters, but many of them were actual communists yes. in the deepest meaning of what that is, including Modiba Keita, Marion Nguabe, uh, uh, Amilcar Gabral. And uh, so we want to put something together so people can see uh, these leaders and see them in relationship to their people. And there's a great one, a Chinese documentary on Modiba Keita. It's really nice. And, you know, one of the things, I don't know whether we'll do subtitles or we'll just, just have somebody translate it. It's, it's a wonderful documentary. Um, and it's just so interesting to see these figures, how you could see in their beings, the purposefulness of their lives, even though they were assassinated and overthrown by Western nations. Uh, really horrible, you know, thing. But anyway, that's, yeah. And so we want to make it as friendly to as many people as possible, as accessible to as many people as possible. And the message is, if there is struggle, there is a future. And when we get to Noam Chomsky, we're going to see the opposite of that. Uh, but if you don't mind, I, I'd like to read, and this can be tweaked a little bit, but I think the uh, political geography, the politics of it fits who we are at this time. Okay. Our vision on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. With confidence and pride, the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation celebrates our 10th anniversary. We do this at a time when the world and our nation is experiencing historic crises. The most glaring features of the crises are war, climate change, poverty, and rule by networks of anti-human elites, a neoliberal, undemocratic, and authoritarian elite who are no, no more than 5% of the population and are the wealthiest part of the country have almost complete power over the nation. It is estimated that more than $50 trillion have gone from the working and middle classes to them over the last 40 years. Social and economic injustice abounds. Americans are poorer than 50 years ago. The American working and middle classes have almost completely collapsed. Bewilderment and uncertainty, bewilderment, uncertainty and despair define their life worlds. Most Americans are either unemployed or underemployed, poor, homeless, or ill housed, ill fed, uneducated, uh, or poorly educated, 
drug addicted, mentally or physically ill, experience declining life expectancies or are imprisoned. Mm -hmm. They are without futures and life appears as bottomless cruelty. They see no way forward, no answers to their problems and no future in the existing system. The weight of social inequality has brought our society to the edge of collapse. This social, economic and political situation is unsustainable. The people are divided and the nation is in the worst political crisis of its history. American society faces a great catastrophe. Fear grips the people, forcing many to retreat from society and the struggle for change. Children and youth are in the deepest distress. They have been abandoned by our society that is mad, has gone mad on profits and war. For tens of millions of children and youth, life is a long, cold winter. The vast majority of Americans do not trust the government. 60% say the government is corrupt and does not represent them. So alienated is part of the people that 25% say they would support using arms to change the government. Despite what seems like unbroken darkness, there are possibilities for change. Great crises create possibilities for great change. Everything depends on what the people do. The Saturday Free School has but one moral option, that is to join the people, to fight for ideological clarity and to encourage unity and yeah. struggle. Yeah. We bring with us our unique vision of what is possible. We believe that pregnant in the deepest wells of people's aspirations are solutions. Like most of the American people, we believe that the primary condition for change is to be found in unity and struggle. Moreover, we believe that human beings possess the moral capacity to rise above the crises they experience and to save the planet from war, climate destruction and poverty, and to create a new democracy worthy of human life. It is upon this foundation that we go forward, unafraid of the future, yet recognizing the great dangers we confront. In world historic terms, we are witnessing a change of epochs, from the epoch of European hegemony to the epoch of humanity, and what is defined as a multipolar world. The myths of white supremacy and the inevitability of war, capitalism, and the rule of finance capital are being exploded in every part of the world. Vast changes are taking place. The question is, how will change come about in the US? How with so much division can the people come forward with a single vision for the future? Three American revolutions have occurred. That of 1776, the Civil War, and the Civil Rights and Black Freedom Movement of the 1950s and 60s. While incomplete, the American people and the nation are offspring of the three American revolutions. More than the American Revolution and the Civil War, the third American Revolution most clearly rethought the possibilities of a new nation and a new people. Guided by the vision of Martin Luther King Jr., the nation was compelled in ways it never had to reckon with its history, identity, and what it must become if it is to survive. The American nation and the American people consequently would change. 
We are different from what we were at that time, but we're not yet complete. We are not yet free, nor are we what are we what we must become. The task of achieving a moral, spiritual, economic, and political remaking of the nation and the people requires us to return to the values of the Third American Revolution in the name of a new democracy and the realization of a new people. A fourth American revolution is necessary. Despite the uncertainty and chaos of the moment, we are at the beginning of a fourth American revolution. The central democratic goal of the fourth American revolution is to bring to actuality the yet, yet unfinished goals of the third American revolution. To achieve democracy and peace, we as a nation must grasp the moral, spiritual, and political values, I said this already, articulated by Martin Luther King Jr. Based on these values and the vision that inspired them, the people must take power. We, if we are to have a future, a new democracy anchored to the people and their aspirations must be established. A new democracy is a democracy for all our people. However, first on this democratic agenda must be children and youth, yeah. our future. The Saturday Free School has confidence that the most courageous of our people can come forward to lead us to this new democracy, to unity and an end to war. A new consciousness must arise that is anchored to a recognition that we are all part of a single garment of destiny, that what affects one of us directly affects us all indirect, indirectly. But more as a nation devoted to peace and democracy, we can help humanity construct the world house of all nations, civilizations, and races. This consciousness recognizes there's a future if we but fight for it. Martin Luther King Jr. was right in insisting that we not be confined to the colony of now, but aspire to the empire of eternity, to a future of limitless possibilities. The moral and spiritual values we must embrace are as old as humanity itself, enshrined in the doctrines of all great religious, spiritual systems, moral and humanistic philosophies, and as contemporary as this moment. These values must be taught and retaught. They must be actualized in music, song, poetry, and painting. A radical revolution of values must be the grounding principle for the fourth American revolution. We can choose as many will to retreat into pessimism and escapism. The best of our children and youth and older people will come to the forefront and proclaim our unbending commitment to humanity. That moment contains the essential lessons for this time. For us, the thinking of Du Bois, Martin Luther King and James Baldwin are the foundation for vision for this time. They conceive the coming American revolution to be creating a new American people and thus a new nation and a new democracy. The Saturday Free School is part of an inheritance of the great revolutionary achievements of the modern world. We are connected to the Russian and Chinese revolutions, the Indian independence movement, the African freedom struggles, and the Cuban revolution. We continue to learn from Marx and Lenin, Mao, Ho Chi Minh, Kim Il-sung, Gandhi, and Fidel Castro the courageous African freedom fighters who were socialists and communists are a source of inspiration. Our moral and political values must include such figures as Kwame Nkrumah, Patrice Lumumba, 
Amilcar Gabral, Seka Ture, Modiba Keita, and Marion Nguave. We stand upon the legacies of Thomas Paine, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, John Brown, Henry Highland Garnett, and other fighters against slavery. We are connected to the spirit of Paul Robeson, Mother Jones, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Lucy Parsons, Eugene V. Debs, Big Bill Haywood, and the legions of fighters for the rights of workers and the poor. A new scientific synthesis for this time of crisis is called for, drawing on the theoretical possibilities proposed by Henry Winston we are working out a new revolutionary philosophical and theoretical framework. Such a framework emerges from European and radical thought, including the thought of V.I. Lenin and the Russian Revolution and the principal thinkers of the Black Freedom Movement. We conceptualize this as a synthesis of the scientific thought of W.E.B. Du Bois and V.I. Lenin. Recognizing that every revolution must be guided by great ideas in science, we seek to equip our people with a possible theoretical framework for our time. Such a synthesis is a new lens to understand the world in this time. Marx, Lenin, and the Russian Revolution advanced revolutionary theory to a new level. Their thought, however, was not complete. W.E.B. Du Bois brought the full weight of scientific understanding of slavery, the color line, and racial oppression to earlier revolutionary theory. This constitutes a more complete understanding of modern societies and their potential. Marx and Lenin advanced social science. They linked social science to revolutionary change. W.E.B. Du Bois completed what Marx and Lenin and their collaborators began, producing new and in fact richer theory for our time. Rather than just class and class conflict, Du Bois introduces the scientific understanding of racial oppression and how it shapes class consciousness and revolutionary practice. Du Bois also argued for the possibility, indeed the inevitability, of an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of world civilization, a constitution, a reconstitution that would bring with it new forms of government, the state, economics, and culture. For Du Bois, this constitutes a rebirth of humanity as such and a restart of history. Du Bois's civilizational predisposition suggests that the crises of our time demands not merely new ways of talking about the human situation, but new civilizations, new democracies, new philosophical and moral frameworks emer emerging from humanity's majorities, the darker races. The democratic and revolutionary vision and practice of the Third American Revolution further enlarged upon these possibilities of revolutionary change in the most powerful nation history has ever seen. Our nation and people are at the start of a long march to a new democracy, peace, and to people's power. The Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation joins this march, imbued with knowledge and courage, driven by the moral imperative to act we see the future and we see a new people in the making. On this occasion of celebration, we greet and salute the people, the children and youth, the activists, the revolutionaries and Democrats, the people's artists and poets. We join our children and youth and proclaim to them, there is a sky, there is a future, but it can only be won through struggle. 
We do not damn the future, we greet it. We do not fear the future, we welcome it. Because tomorrow is today, what will be is determined by what we do now. We appeal to the moral instincts and the moral capacity of the American people and their ability for reasonable discourse. Like Martin Luther King, we believe that the art of the moral universe is long, but it bends to justice. Like James Baldwin, we believe the most important moral imperative is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love is the moral capacity to think in collective rather than individualist and egotistic ways. Love bestows the ability upon people to see humanity and to recognize oneself as unalterably a part of humanity, to see the I in the we. Love gives to human actions an all humanity character, an all embracing character, I should say, an all embracing all humanity character. I'm sorry. All humanity character. Love aspires to build a world house where all who inhabit it see themselves as sisters and brothers. We believe that at this time of crisis, there are immense possibilities. We believe we can achieve our nation and achieve democracy in the name of the people. We invite all to join us in this celebration. Well, uh, she's already dead and she saw a typo. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think, you know, a little, uh, you know, editing, but I think it's what we're striving for. And um, of course, the objective is to speak to as many audiences mm -hmm. as possible and in speaking to them to encourage unity among them. Mm -hmm. uh, I think people will recognize the crisis as it is described, but the question is what is to be done, mm -hmm. how we move forward. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's fine. No. So uh, what Emily didn't mention, we have a website we're working on uh, and uh, we have a logo we're working on. And um, one of the things uh, with the website, Emily and I talked about this the other day on the phone is that, you know, we had it very, you know, Du Bois, Martin Luther King and Baldwin and, you know, very proper and appropriate, but we wanted to give it more life, more color, um, more okay, celebration. So we're kind of working on that. Serafina has, uh, yeah, Serafina has done a, uh, a beautiful logo, mm -hmm. which in fact captures the brightness. Uh, but it's just a few little tweaks we wanted to make. Yeah. I don't know if you. Uh, you can pass it around. This is where it is now. It's just a draft. Um, yeah, well, I've been working on this with Kathy, Aileen, and Michelle. We've been talking about this um, 
which is the nice. Uh, and this is more to the human elements uh, of what we want to uh, capture about our message to the world. And, you know, it, it deals with the child and then there's kind of like, a, it's like a kind of family figures kind of thing mm -hmm. and that there is a sense of future. So I, that's what that is trying to capture, but I'll edit that more so, so that it's more clear and understandable. Yeah, I'll also add that we went through a lot of different iterations when we were trying to develop a concept for the logo because, well, like Serafina and Doc just mentioned, we were really trying to develop something that would capture the essence and not just be like a literal face of Du Bois or Baldwin or King or, um, you know, only a child that looked maybe like a hospital or a nonprofit or a school logo. Um, I think it was, it took a lot of conversation and then also Serafina's skill to mm -hmm. develop that, something that could move the essence of the, of the free school forward, but also capture the essence of it as it stands. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I thought the vision statement was awesome because it is, especially needed in this time that's for one and two i don't even see in history like from the speeches that we study from the writings that we study this complete understanding of this world movement towards freedom and democracy for humanity and this vision statement i really do think understands the now um, this of uh, urgency um, because it's a it's really kind of like a life or death situation that we're in right now and it also understands the in a in a complete sense of the substantive the substantive historical um, like the deep history that we all in this world stand upon mm -hmm. in like mm -hmm. any country should know the history of the world peace movement, the history of King Gandhi and in their own struggles. And what that also means in substance for their uh, countries um, at large. And I think that this statement and event is of world significance. I really do think so. It deserves publicity. And if it doesn't, it makes sense also when it doesn't get publicity. But um, it will make a deep impact and will be a, a, a way a, a way to develop. It's like we're another stage where we're at a platform and we can um, further this ideological struggle, which I do think the world needs ideological clarity to stand against the white supremacist world order and um, move away from the West. And I do think that we are in step with countries who are also doing this, um, like North Korea or China. And um, it tells me as an individual that I am a part of the world that can be possible. And that isn't, and this is what we are, we're just, talking about with just Kensington. Everybody's got all these, like there's a lot of ways that people could die in this country. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's like, mm 
this um, thing that the free school is proposing and this vision that we're stating that all of humanity can have and can build toward um, means that nobody is really on the wayside uh, or lost, even if they feel like they are or that they've gone um, so, or they're stranded too far away from um, actually holding on to their own humanity. Mm -hmm. There are people who believe in all, all poor people, all people who, um, who are not really in a full sense alive right now. And I think that this idealism is not a, a abstract idealism. Um, this is a sense of commitment and uh, it's not gonna be easy and it's not perfect as in like, and nobody's gonna be perfect in this whole process. But the fact that um, it is that we've been able to sh come this far and then also know that there's a way forward to strive towards shows that to me as an individual um, that like, that it's like, it's, it's, it's a, that it's, it's, it's getting closer to where we need to be as human beings to be a complete yeah. human being. Mm -hmm. um, but I really appreciate the vision statement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I also wanted to say that the vision statement is really beautiful and powerful. It gives you a sense of how we are a children. We are all children of this history, not just the history of this country, the history of wherever there have been revolutionary movements led by the masses and human beings. And it also gives you a sense of how human beings are capable of such extraordinary um, tasks when, you know, what, what is at stake is the children of the society and the youth of the society. And it sort of shakes you out. I think Serafina was also saying that I totally agree. It shakes you of this, you know, lethargy that you feel and this sort of, you know, feeling of paralysis you feel when things are going around, going wrong around you because you feel like, okay, I mean, I'm a part of the solution. I'm not just mm -hmm. a victim of the problem. <laughs> And uh, that's really, I mean, it really makes you feel empowered just by being, you know, just by being human and present in this world, like you could achieve a lot. And I also feel like it uh, clarifies the free school is trying to build a cadre, you know, for the revolutionary process that needs to take place in the United States that can't be put, you know, postponed any longer because, you know, things are coming to a head. Those are just some thoughts of, of the top of my because, head, but it's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Because it's like a substance, it's a substantive thing that we're doing and also what the vision statement helps define. And what that is, what it means for me is like, it like in this time, like everybody just wants to reject like everything and like want to do something new or like all that kind of stuff. And it's like, reject everything. Yeah. But what this, what like a substitute, like what is a weighty task. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's why it means so much because we're talking about the real, we're talking about what actually is mm -hmm. happening. We know that there's a sense of truth, there's an anchorage. Um, 
that one can rely on, that you can feel like you can have comfort in and not like uh, feel like it it will fall over on your own weight and stuff like that. It's, I think it's a substantive, like I know what that means now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, that's another thing I was thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think this is, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking about this in the context of obviously the worsening social crisis and the fact that the only answer that I've seen from most of the left groups is just, you know, calls for XYZ protests, single issue protests, or others are talking about get out the vote. Um, but I think this kind of message, this kind of vision, and this kind of work also is, uh, I mean, it's its just missing from that whole equation, but it's so sorely needed. I mean, this thing of uh, reaching the people, building on what the people have, like all that you read in the in the mission yes. statement. Um, I mean, whether it's their different spiritual traditions, whether it's the legacies of the freedom movements that they know, um, like the civil rights movement or the other, various American revolutions and world revolutions. I mean, that is, you know, that is such a powerful thing. It's like you're building on a foundation that's already there. You're meeting the people kind well, of halfway where they're at, but in a, in a serious way, because, you know, all these, um, it's funny because uh, this phrase is often used by the left people, like, oh, meet, meet them where they're at, but it's always in a very patronizing way. Like, oh, they, they're all stupid, they care, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like all they care about is, uh, let's say, for example, the minimum wage. Meet them where they're at. Let's talk about. Let's talk about, you know, minimum wage, and we'll use that. But really, we're going to talk to them about socialism. You know, I've seen that a million, a hundred times, like times. But this is a different thing. It's meeting them. It's taking the people seriously. Knowing, realizing that people know, people understand, people have intelligence, people have history. So it's meeting them where they're at really with their history and that they, um, and working with them in a way that both sides can unlock the potential, potential. that's there. And that's why it's powerful. Yeah, I kind of want to echo that idea. I think it really uh, establishes where our strength lies mm -hmm. in that we're willing to accept this history. We're willing mm -hmm. to accept all the different issues and, and the, the pain that we've experienced and we see in our society. And we're taking all of those blows in and we're standing firm in, in a belief in an understanding that we as human beings can rise to the occasion and we have these historical uh examples to feed upon um yeah it's really building a fire of a of strengthening culture that um that's very much where we come from ultimately um, so I think it's um, again very, very important, very powerful, and I appreciate all the work that's been put into crafting that because it's, it's uh, extremely important in the moment that we're in. Yeah, I think yeah, the vision. I mean, when I was listening to you read out the vision statement, I I, I kept constantly going back to what you were talking about in the at the conference, like the two two speeches you gave on Thursday and Friday. And I think a lot of it, it is time to get there from because you keep talking about, I think the, the 10th anniversary is really, it's really about, you know, what, like the sense of 
of the fact that the American people have been produced by this history and and by the three revolution, which you say. And I think this makes sense that you know when we when we attack the revolutionary history of America, we are really it's 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 really an, an attack on the American people. And the way we understand the three the three revolutions in this sense that you know they are not complete. The American people are are you know they have progressed in the last hundred and two hundred years. But yes, we are not where we need to be. We are not complete. These revolutions have not been complete. And I think understanding this history and the fact that that you know people need to know their uh, need to know that you know this. Um, this sort of void that people feel about their own lives in, like, in, in, in very individual terms. I think this addresses that question. I think, yes, people do have this sense of incompleteness, and this really goes back to the fact that these revolutions have not been complete. And I think, you know, this, uh, yeah, I think the vision statement clearly puts this forward that, uh, like, what is the way forward in order to move forward? We really need to understand how we are incomplete. That's the only way for the revolution to be completed. Uh, and also, I was thinking of uh, of uh, of you know what it means, um, what the revolutionary process in America meant and you know means. And that I think you had mentioned this too that you know a revolution is not really about revolutionaries, but about the relationship to the people. And you no, know, I, I I think it make it's just beginning to make more sense because. Uh, like what Jahan was saying, like all of these, uh, all of these so-called revolutionary groups and alternatives we we see for us today, uh, yeah, they're all you know they're all about trying to teach the people about what the way forward is instead of having an understanding of where people come from, mm -hmm. and and yes, clearly we can keep talking about socialism forever without understanding the people and what they need. But I think, you know, what we are talking about in preschool and what we will be talking about in the 10th anniversary going forward, this really understands the people. And this is the only, it seems that you know, this is the only way that, that you can get sort of you know, get under the people in order to take them forward. You can't teach from above. I think this is this really you teach from above. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> But Amelia, what you said and what you're saying also is reminding me of what, like, okay, I was reading some of the Mumba and he was like, uh, I don't know, he was talking, I forget what he was talking about. All I remember that he was saying, like, we don't need, like, Western investments or Western money because what did the rural or the poor of the Congo people do um, when they didn't have any money? Like, they just grew their own and they... Um, kind of did something else but they finessed so it's like so i mean i mean he, he said it better obviously but what the what the west wants to do is take away what people know about themselves and any knowledge of themselves their history and um what the free school is doing is saying no this is what you need to move forward um and we can actually move forward i like what you said Mio, because we can actually stand against West, if we know ourselves in some senses. Um, one of the things I was trying to convey is that the American people are not a passive, backward mass of people, mm -hmm. that there's a progressive history to be built upon. And the other thing I tried to emphasize is 
the American people have the moral capacity to change things. And uh, this is, in met, from many circles, this is questionable. You know, uh, what they say characterizes the American people is a passive, angry, racist mass, you know, who do not have the moral capacity to overcome the crisis. So, you know, that that's, but if, if there's not a lot else to say, why don't we move on to Noam Chomsky and King? Oh yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> Of a couple comments here. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about, you know, some things said last week that uh, for me resonated level. But in your statement, can you even um, can you get at and encourage people to embrace the idea of love force, soul mm -hmm. force, human force? Because these liberations, in my opinion, um, clearly they've been they've been reactions to to, to violent aggression. But there's something else going on inside a person, and they want more than oftentimes even those who successfully overthrow the previous regimes. So I guess the point I want to make is. If you can speak to a future that involves even those who attacked the Capitol on the 6th of January, that points to their humanity and that encourages us to, to embrace soul force. I use, I use force. that last part, oh, last paragraph is love, love, love. But I'll show it to you okay. and we'll talk about this. I'd like to, yeah, because maybe a, a, a sentence mm -hmm. could. That's right. I agree with this. Mm. This is very, very important. I agree with that completely. Um, and that is, uh, and this is what Johan is so uh, well at uh, pinpointing. When you think of the left, you think of soullessness and loveless. You know, uh, and I agree with you. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, I'm pointing to the humanity of everybody. That's that right. Be at odds with what you with what no. some people said. No, 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 talking no. about the soul and, yeah. and, and and the potential for love. That's right. No. Even amongst those people yeah. who attacked the Capitol building, no, no, no. and we agree with that. In the free school, we agree with that three hundred percent. And in fact, and I I think that's also yeah. I'm thinking about yeah. them when I was writing this. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's why I taught you. I'll show it to you. I'll show you different parts. Okay, y'all, let's, uh, unless, um, are there any uh, comments that we want to read? Oh, go, go ahead. No, no, I, I don't think there are. Oh, no, okay. Um, let's get on to Chomsky. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I have um, read and followed Noam Chomsky for a good part of my life. Um, I remember him initially as um, an intellectual, 
who protested the war in Vietnam and who went to jail a few times for doing so. Um, and I only later on became aware of his uh, immense contribution, contributions to um, academic knowledge and scientific knowledge. Um, no, I don't think there's any American academic that is person a person who is a, a professional academician, a professor at a university or research institution. I don't know of any person of that type that has made so many contributions to modern fields of scientific knowledge. Uh, when you talk about Noam Chomsky, you're not talking, you're not only talking about uh, linguistics or grammars or syntaxes, uh, that is the ways that, that language works and how language and thought are intimately connected uh, taking all of that uh, from 17th, 18th, 19th, uh, even 20th century philosophy and transforming it into an area of empirical scientific research. In other words, when he is talking about uh, cognitive science, which we could say he is a founder of. When we, when we talk about cognitive science, uh, if you went back to the 17th century or Descartes or Leibniz or, or even Kant, probably Hegel, uh, they would call it epistemology. Uh, it was a matter of the mind uh, separated from any uh, from the physical brain itself, for the most part. So philosophy was a, a body of research, a body of knowledge, a body of uh, science, if you will, that studied the mind in a, uh, well, one could say metaphysical way. Cognitive science takes this vast body of philosophical assumptions, philosophical research, uh, philosophy, and uh, makes it the object of empirical scientific research. Uh, Chomsky is important in this regard because he challenges a guy by the name of B.F. Skinner and a whole body of progressive and liberal anthropology and social science, which says that all that we are is the product of society. That language is a social product that we learn from culture and society. Uh, Chomsky said that language uh, is, uh, how should I put this? The predisposition to language is uniquely human. And that to understand it, you have to understand 
the precondition of language, which is the human brain. Yeah. And um, it's, how does, how does it go, the uni, uh, universal thesis. In other words, there are no superior and inferior languages. You go back to the 19th century, oh, German is the greatest language because it has more scientific and technical terms than the language spoke, let us say, uh, by the Pular people of Senegal and Mali. They don't have scientific and technical terms in their language. So it is inferior to German. Uh, I guess they would also say that uh, Russian and other Slavic languages are inferior to German. So the more technical terms and vocabulary that a language has, uh, the more superior it is. What Chomsky shows is that the fundaments of grammar rules and syntax are pretty much universal and thus determined by the operation, the, the conditionalities, the brain. Now for this reason, I've often called um, Chomsky a neo-Kantian. Uh, he says his favorite philosopher is Hume, David Hume. I don't think there's necessarily a uh, contradiction there. Although a uh, person say, well, he's not a neo-Kantian. Well, well, then I would say he's a structuralist, uh, the study of the preconditions for certain behaviors or phenomenon. I associate it with Kant because Kant talks about the categorical imperatives. What precedes the act of thought and thinking itself? For Kant, it is these concepts, these categories. For uh, Chomsky, it is the brain. And so not only does he is he a pioneer in linguistics and revolutionized it, I think pretty much, I think uh, around the edges, people are still debating, but I think the fundamental thing, he changed what goes on and in the name of linguistics. Uh, the other thing is branching out from that, uh, he is a founder of modern cognitive science, which I just described. But more than that, systems analysis, you know, I guess that may, does that make sense to you, Caleb? Yeah, uh, systems analysis, anthropology. Uh, <laughs> can we hold off on that for a minute? I'll come back to that in a bit. You know, well, system, systems, uh, we usually associate it with the holes and the parts, the whole thing and the uh, parts that constitute it. But it's a field in philosophy. Uh, a field, uh, well, a field in management, uh, okay. political science, uh, uh, even anthropology. You know, you the study. Biology, also. Yes, biology, of course, of course. So, uh, and many, many other fields. It's hard to limit. Chomsky's impact, very difficult. Uh, now I say as an academic, of course, I would say that Du Bois has been as impactful in ways that Chomsky is not. 
Chomsky is operating within fields of, of, mod, of modern academic research, modern academic knowledge, modern forms of empirical science. That's why he would, uh, of course, you know, there would be ways to talk about his theorizing in biology, as in systems analysis, or again, cognitive science, or computer science, uh, and so on. And how he has impacted all of these fields, I'm not altogether certain, but the guy is cited all over the place uh, by, by people in all of these different fields. Um, He then has, he's written over 150 books, uh, all of them not by himself, uh, co-authored, some of them. Uh, but he is, as a result, one of the greatest public intellectuals in the history of the United States. He is a guy, you know, without charisma, I don't think. Uh, he doesn't speak. You know, he speaks very dryly and intentionally so because he believes in reason and rational discourse uh, and not appealing to emotional um, feelings. Um, but he is a narrator. Uh, in various interesting ways, he creates narratives. Uh, using, especially in his discussions of geopolitics and world history and so on. Uh, he always performs in such a way that says to the listener, I am appealing to the most important experts in a certain field. This is not me speaking. This is what so-and-so, and he will always tell you who teaches at Harvard. <laughs> he always, so, it is, it is a narrative style which appeals to, uh, which uh, when I say uses or references expert opinion, right, 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 right. you know? Appeal uh, to academic authority. That's, that, that's right, academic and scientific authority. There is no, now this is the way he performs when he presents his thinking in these fields of linguistics and other things. It's always, and he, the guy has, even at, at this age that he's at, I thought the guy was on his way down. He looked so bad, you know? The man's memory, his memory and his- And he'll go on for it. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But he, I mean, it's just amazing. So he's not lost anything in brain power. You know, it's still there. He still reads, all of the journals in science, the journal science, all, and he's always saying in this peer reviewed journal, uh, such and such, in the peer reviewed journal of, um, of environmental studies, in the peer. So he, and that is, he took that style from his academic presentations and then transferred it to his public intellectual dissident positions on US foreign policy. And he is a dissident, okay. Now, I'm trying to set up things because at the point of his greatest strength is also the Achilles heel. 
uh, while I don't think any of us, I know I couldn't, uh, could challenge him when it comes to these scientific fields and who is the authority and so on and so forth on this, that, or the other. When it comes to geopolitics and politics, period, there is room to question, well, why is this your authority and someone else is not? Uh, and uh, very honestly, and this is characteristic of, uh, of Chomsky, I don't know that he even cites a black person on anything. And, and you know, when you talk about politics, the American people, geopolitics, there is, or he really doesn't cite too many Asians outside of these fields of scientific knowledge. So it is a European project now. And he believes that the ball is still in the court of Europe and of the enlightenment. That if the world is to be saved, and he's not convinced of that. I want to get to that in a minute. It is the West, Western elites, not an American elites. America is the decisive country. What American elites do will determine whether or not humanity will be saved. Now, this is boldness, believe me. It is really very bold. Now, let's just get to where he is today. And like, um, like Lamar said, the guy's brain has lost nothing as far as I can see. This is a smart, super smart man. Um, I didn't mention philosophy and analytic philosophy has been impacted by Noam Chomsky. Um, you know, in some ways outside of literature and film critique, philosophy has fundamentally changed because of Noam Chomsky and his elevating of analytic philosophy. Don't ask me what that is yet, sure. but we'll get to that in a minute. Analytical philosophy or um, or logics, another field that he's impact, logic, uh, probably mathematics, I don't know, but he's all over the damn place. But he is quintessentially a man of the European enlightenment. That ain't a bad thing. He believes in science, he believes in truth, but he believes and this is problematic, that he is closer to knowing the truth in a comprehensive way than almost anybody in the world. And a lot of people do believe that because he has become something of a guru to, I mean, tens of thousands, if not millions of Western academics and intellectuals. I mean, to see a guy like Chomsky standing before an audience, let us say at UCLA or some other university of a thousand or more people, and they being, you know, just 
totally focused. It's almost he's a guru. Yeah. I mean, maybe in a good way, I'll put it that way. Presenting a dissident view. Now, probably for, for close to three generations of young college students, professors, and academics. Uh, in other words, there is a school of politics that we could call Chomskyan. Mm -hmm. He's that huge. If you look at him, present, and I've fortunately, unfortunately, been, been looking uh, without stop over the last few weeks wow. at Chomsky lectures. Mm -hmm. And they're all over YouTube. I mean, if you want to know Chomsky, I would say, you know, just follow his lectures. And you learn a lot of, and, you know, a lot of times you find yourself at odds with him and, you know, debating with him as he's speaking. However, that period of confidence, of his sense that he was shaping a generation of elites, uh, Western European and American elites, um, that uh, from the outside, he was affecting what policymakers in the US government thought and often did. Uh, I am certain that people in the State Department and in other parts of government uh, call upon him consult with him through email or other ways to get his opinion or look at his lectures or go to his lectures, you know. Uh, I mean, it's almost phenomenal. And, you know, you feel a little bit, as they say, inadequate when you listen to him uh, talk about Indonesia, for example, or East Timor, or Afghanistan and the Najibullah government. I said, I forgot about the Najibullah government. <laughs> <laughs> How did you remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he was, old. he was in the 80s by then, yeah. But nonetheless, you know, the guy, I, 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 I'm saying, well, did they tell you that they were going to ask you about this before? So, you, you, know, you know, you did some research to get prepared. But I mean, it's, and then, but he's not just talking about, he's saying, and he will say, so-and-so who wrote a recent book on Afghanistan showed that the Soviets did not leave Afghanistan because they were defeated, but because, I forget what the thesis was, but I said, God damn. And then he'll do the same thing if you hear him lecturing about, um, uh, uh, biolinguistics. I mean, it's just, and the, and the memory is so phenomenal. Okay. Now, all of that having been said, but what happens when the rational mind, the rational thinker, um, the computer intelligence, as it were, mm -hmm hits a crisis. In other words, you know, even artificial intelligence operates off of certain algorithms, certain logics, okay? So that's the same 
when you see Chomsky. He operates on the basis of certain logics, certain modalities of reasoning, and hence certain assumptions, what Kant would call categorical imperatives. And you cannot just go up on Chomsky and say, oh, I disagree, because then he's going to come back at you with X, Y, you know, this, uh, this expert said this, so-and-so at Harvard said this, so-and-so at Stanford, and, you know, you just down here on the ground, yeah. you, know, you just say, well, <laughs> God dang. But the question is, because you can't beat him no. in citing, yeah. you know, whoever's the authority. But there are certain assumptions. Mm -hmm. I want to get to those assumptions, but first I want to say where he is today. Just like he was giving lectures at all these universities all the time. Today he's on damn near every podcast mm -hmm. on YouTube you can find. Oh, okay. In fact, <laughs> you should invite him to the free school. He'll come. <laughs> yeah, he might come. I mean, if, you know, he's everywhere because he is, yeah, but, uh, and he li lives in Arizona and, but especially he wants to influence the young generation to act and to realize that humanity faces an existential crisis a crisis that if it is not resolved, human civilization could cease to exist in the next few years. That um, in the 2020 election, he argued that pretty much the only issue of substance was the question of the two candidates on climate and environmental destruction. And he felt he feels that the Republican Party, which has most of the climate deniers in it, is the most dangerous party, as he says, to ever exist in history. Yeah. Now he says, and he appeals to uh, the bulletin of uh, atomic physics, yeah, atomic science. Yeah, which back in the 1950s came out with this doomsday clock after the Soviets and the United States exploded hydrogen weapons. And at that point, uh, every year they come out and say how close the doomsday clock is to the 12 o'clock hour, which means the end of humanity. So when they started out, they said we're seven minutes away. By the time they get to Trump, they start they stopped using minutes and went down to seconds. <laughs> so now we're like a hundred seconds away from, from the end. <laughs> it's not a pretty thing. I mean, if, when you look, you know, I'm one of these people. I look at one of the ways that I can go to sleep at night is by looking at YouTube lectures. So I, seriously, I hate to admit this in public, you know, but after, like for after the uh, India conference, I'm so hyped. So I said, I'm going home and go to bed, but I can't go to sleep. So I said, let me turn on 
a Chomsky lecture. Yeah. And I go to sleep. But then I wake up to it in the morning. I've been listening. I'm like, oh, let be serious. <laughs> I, mean, I won't do like Prince and Michael Jackson and get on fentanyl, you know? But anyway, so I'm, I miss you, miss me. And wake up, I'm looking at this guy that looks like a werewolf. <laughs> uh, I don't even get a cut out of that. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's what said there's something going on here. Because previously the guy was handsome. I mean, not handsome, but you know, I mean he looked all right. Now the guy took his glasses off. He's he got a, a wild beard. Is I said, oh shit. I mean, now, now he's doing it from his house, right? So he's speaking from his crib, yeah. Podcasting, it's cat. He needs to work on that camera game for the podcast. He needs to put his glasses back. Yeah, <laughs> terrible <laughs> man. And the beard. And, right, I mean, right. I, I, was, I said, wait a minute, something's going on with this cat. The hair and makeup. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so here's here's this thing that the Union of Atomic Scientists now say we can't say we're minutes away from doomsday. We're now seconds. So I've said, I hope none of the young people look at this shit. Then he says, uh, you know, the uh, Union of Atomic Scientists, they did, they initially did this to say how far we are from nuclear war. So they would say, for example, when a treaty to limit nuclear weapons between the Soviet Union and the United States came into effect, well, rather than being five minutes away from Armageddon, we're now six minutes away, you know? Uh, and that's not a good, you know, a doomsday clock, you know? So most people don't even pay it attention. How do you live every day? face yeah. with a doomsday clock. Yeah. So then, okay. So then with uh, global warming increasing, then you're dealing with two possibilities of human extinction, nuclear war and the destruction of the environment, okay? Which together, push us closer to doomsday. I had to stop listening to Chopscat. Then, okay, if that's not enough, there's a third factor. Nuclear weapons with no agreements between Russia and the United States or China and the United States, one. Two, climate destruction and climate deniers. And three, with the election of Trump, the breakdown of any capacity, moral capacity of the American people for rational discourse and a complete disbelief in science. Now, the three of those have brought world civilization close, if not inevitably close to a, uh, a catastrophe that could end all life and all civilization on the planet and a situation where the living would admire the dead. Said, I wish I could have gone out with the quickness. Okay. 
now. Um, then he, um, in terms of the environment, he says that we are in a new geological age, and this is not him saying it, many geologists, you know, geological time is different than human time and social time. Geological time and geological epochs are much longer. Geologists say we're in a new geological age defined as the Anthropocene. This is the age when humanity affects the environment more than the environment affects humanity. Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? So when a new, and this new geological age began somewhere around 1940, 1945. And if that don't hit you hard enough, we're in a period of a sixth extinction. Yeah. So I'm going to sleep listening to this. Wait, so I'm a little thrown off these days. Well, there have been, according to geologists and other scientists who oh, like the dinosaurs and stuff like that? Yeah, the dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, I think that was the first extinction. And since then, so we're now in, we're in something like that dinosaur situation right now. Humanity is at risk. Yeah, 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 humanity, yes. We're in this, and there's a whole body of literature on the, the sixth extinction. Can you imagine us trying to do the celebration of yeah. India's independence? <laughs> and we have a panel on the sixth extinction. Yeah. Yeah. Now, okay. I think that pretty much describes where Chomsky is coming from. Now, when I listen to him, I feel that I'm listening to a person was deeply hysterical, though very rational. I think one would have to agree with him that the dangers are high. You know, he feels that the Russian invasion of Ukraine pushed Western societies back towards fossil fuels. And at the set, which is the existential danger of climate disaster, and at the same time, raises the possibility of a nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia, or NATO and Russia. And that in the throes of all of this, there's not a politics or an elite that the masses of people will listen to. Therefore, uh, an irrationality has overtaken the American people. Now, just one last point, that for him, everything depends upon what happens in the United States or other Western European countries. Everything. Uh, these are the centers of science. These are the centers of reason. These 
are the societies from which the Enlightenment came. Um, and all of the great civilizational values that can be drawn upon are Western. This is obviously not what Martin Luther King or Du Bois were looking at. Let me just, I'll end on, I'll just give you uh, certain things. Because Chomsky's strategy was always an elite strategy to appeal to Western educated scientific elites that because of their unique position vis-a-vis -vis the state and the government could affect policy, that he as a dissident, not connected to any of the institutions of power or, or influence, would not be seen and was not seen as having a self-interest in all of this. His only interest is in the truth and in changing US policy. He is not a revolutionary. He is a social democrat and really an anarcho-syndicalist. In other words, if you say nationalize the banks, he says, no, don't nationalize the banks. Let the workers in the banks take them over, OK? Uh, Nationalized general? No, I don't. I don't. He says I don't believe in nationalization. I believe, and this is anarcho-syndicalism. Uh, each uh, uh, factory should be run by the workers in that factory. You know. Uh, so you say in India with Indira, you know. Uh, first of all, he would have opposed the emergency. Uh, that was anti-civil libertarian. And of course, the West is in a position, American intellectuals and policymakers in particular, are in a position to tell the Indians and the Indira Gandhi, well, you don't do that. This is, a, this is the way democracy works, you know? Um, nationalizing banks and so why do that? And of course, he was never, I don't think, a partisan of the Russian Revolution or the Chinese Revolution or any of that, which means that he is the quintessential Western, and I put it, classical liberal. That the values of the West, if we can implement them, can save the planet and save humanity. You know, here we don't have to go into a lot of talk to know that all of the people that we reference don't see the world that way. They saw multiple futures that were not and would not be determined by the West alone. Um, Chomsky believes at this point that humanity is rushing towards its own self-destruction, towards suicide. Uh, we are close to that. The American people are a passive mass of backwardness and that the elite intellectuals 
have ultimately failed to change policy. And it is policy, not systems, that he's interested in changing. Uh, there is no civilizational predisposition or civilizational um, assumptions that would challenge the West. China, well, yeah, they've, do, they've done well economically, but but still Eastern and inferior. Uh, the Russian Revolution was, uh, well, a coup d'etat led by a guy named Lenin, who was very, uh, but let's, let's not make too much of it because ultimately it failed. And in 1991, they threw in the towel, you know, uh, which he celebrated, no, by he the did. way. He said that that was like, it opened up the possibility for a sure So, you know, you can imagine what he would say about the People's Republic of the Congo or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea or anywhere else where people have fought for freedom. Now, to his credit, he is against the excesses of US imperialism in war and the uses of weapons of war. But it is not systemic. It is not a system of political, economic, and social relations that produces this. It is elites that carry out wrong policy. So when you hear him speak, it's the George H.W. Bush administration, the Obama administration, and of course, the worst of worst is uh, Trump. Because Trump, uh, you know, represent represented this wild mass of white people who could do no good for anybody, including themselves, and would destroy everything that Western intellectuals had produced. That, in other words, Trump represents an anti-civilizational, anti-Western civilizational mob. Well, elite strategy talking to elites versus a mass strategy moving the masses. I think that Chomsky's hysteria is a consequence of a failed strategy. He does not at all, if ever, hardly mentions the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King or Du Bois. I mean, you can listen. I never heard him. He's more interested in uh, like an early 20th century anarcho syndicalist, some stuff that you never heard of. Yeah, that you never heard of. <laughs> and if he mentions race, it's like, oh, why do I have to talk about that pedestrian matter? I mean, he doesn't do it like, hey, you know, this was a great movement, like the way we talk about it. It moves the country forward, or as Baldwin would say, America is the last. He don't want a last white nation keep it white, but reform whiteness. Right, right, right. So, saying, so, um, so he never mentions, uh, there are no great black thinkers. Uh, everything is white. I, I know, I, I remember mentioning this to a friend of mine, Gerald Funk, who likes, I mean, everybody likes Chomsky. And my friend uh, was not 
I've never participated in any movement. So everything is armchair. You know, I can't even get him to come to the free school, you know, but he wants to call me and talk day and night about, about whether or not the city council always should be. Okay, but, but as such, Chomsky appeals to him because Chomsky gives him information yeah. and analysis. And, you know, if, you, if you're intellectually lazy or if you can't keep up, I mean, who can keep up with Chomsky? You know, I can't read all that. I mean, on East Timor, come on, man. But he can do it. So he is that guru, that source. But if you say history is decided by people, people created this crisis and people will have to solve it. But if the assumption is, as the Union of Atomic Scientists said, that we're now a hundred minutes from doomsday, a hundred seconds, a hundred seconds. We're a hundred seconds from going down, everybody, everything. Well, you know, take me up to Kensington. Let me get some heroin, shoot some dope, because there is no future. Because elites have not acted in such a way to change policy. The masses are not in the equation. Certainly, the masses of Asia and Africa don't count. And of course, he sees, again, I'll say this, the war in Ukraine as not shifting the balance further away from a unipolar world to a multipolar world has not created new dynamics in international politics but has only brought us closer to nuclear war. Mm -hmm. I'll stop there. Mm -hmm. oh, yes, go ahead, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, well, this is a very uh, profound point that you said, I mean, the way about the, 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 the fact that he sees that history, he, he thinks history shaped by the elite. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that because I've heard over the years other criticisms of him. I mean, you know, some a lot of people have criticized him for being anti-communist and uh, anarchist tendencies. But this is a, this isn't something I've really heard. I think the fact that also because of his social location in the elite, most elite part of the academy, but also because also ideology, the ideologies is embraced whether you want to. Um, classified as some kind of anarchism, or or I, I think it's correct that you said also add classical liberalism, maybe with a radical, in a radical presentation, mm -hmm. you could say. Um, but given all that, that is the way he functions. And it's interesting because um, it's not, I don't think that his constituency is just limited to the Western elite, I mean, his, um, and Western academia, because he is a definitely a huge figure in globally, especially in academic circles and intellectual circles. Like, I know he goes on huge tours of universities throughout the um, third world, like Latin America, Middle mm -hmm. East, you know, I'm sure he's probably, he's definitely been to South Asia as well. 
-hmm. And um, just as a, just something coincidentally that happened, I think in the past few years, he spoke like, he spoke by Zoom or something during the pandemic at a university in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And the, the major press was covering it like it was a huge event, like hanging on every word he said. And they didn't even say anything very profound, but uh, you know, it was like, oh, what do you think of the problem in Pakistan? And he said, oh, too much religious dogmatism, something like that, which is point one on one any analyst would make in that country. But uh, the other thing is, I remember uh, when the recent government um, was overthrown in Pakistan about three years, uh, three months ago, four months ago, some random person, because he's very, he, he does actually respond to emails. That also had a roommate in college who emailed him and he responds like two, three line emails to people. So someone just emailed him saying, do you think the US overthrew the Pakistan, Imran Khan government in Pakistan? And he just sent an email, kind of a more ambiguous email just being like, I don't think so. And gave like two reasons why. And it, that also became big news in Pakistan newspapers. I don't even think he intended it. He was just answering someone's email. So uh, that just I just bring that up to show the, a significance a lot of people attached to him, especially these uh, people in academic circles. And I think he's been the beneficiary. The, 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 of course, there is a lot of substance in him, as we were saying. It's not as if he's totally a lightweight like the people, some of the other people who criticized um, who, are, who are appearing in academia now. But at the same time, he, I think he's been a beneficiary of this anti-communism, all of this erasure of a lot of uh, Im immense black intellectuals like Du Bois from the academy. And so that's allowed him to monopolize the prestige and the distinction of uh, being the foremost critic of the US, of US foreign policy, mm -hmm. US empire and so on. Mm -hmm. But he's uh, very limited. And I think this point is actually, this is very important that he cannot see the future of humanity because he doesn't see who makes history he believes it's going to be his graduate students. He believes it's going to be his, you know, his people who were students who were working in the State Department or in the Democratic Party. And so that's why he's immensely hostile to any kind of populism, as we've seen. He's immensely hostile to the rising multipolar world, any other society. And so, I mean, all this goes together. I mean, to see that the masses make history, you have to reject anti-communism. You have to reject the color line. You have to have a belief in the non-Western world. I mean, for the American people to move forward. And so I think this, yeah, you're hitting on the important contradiction of, of uh, Chomsky. I won't comment on his appearance. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's, it's, the appearance does reflect a certain uh, ang anxiousness and a certain, and the fact that he's writing books, let's say, with B.J. Prashad, yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah. everybody's turning to him. Let's like, yeah. yeah, or or the fact that he's on anybody's podcast, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's trying to reach. He calls himself trying to now go beyond where he previously uh, yeah. was and reach an mm -hmm. audience of young people yeah, yeah. who are internet focused. <laughs> well, that's the other thing is that he's well known in academic circles, but I think like you know the masses don't really. No, you know what I mean? No. One of those people, if you go to college or whatever university, you probably will know him. But if you don't, if you're just like a working person, you probably have no idea who he is. But also, yeah, I think that um, I, I started to notice in 2016, particularly, that he, uh, he started to go, started to kind of feel like, you know, um, like, yo, we're running out of time and like started to, you know, get to this point of like, no, we're reaching a point of no return. Yeah. yeah. And I remember Absolutely. in 2020, he was on that podcast with, uh, I think it was Brianna Joy Gray. Or and he was just like shouting them down. Like, you have to vote for Biden. You have to vote for Biden because, you know, the world is going to end if there's another Trump, Trump term. 
And um, so he's, I mean, yeah, I mean, for even though he's a critic and, and self-start radical, he is part of the establishment, part of the academic establishment, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's at MIT, I think he was at MIT now yes. for most of his career, mm -hmm. most cited academic, very celebrated, mm -hmm. pretty much every academic honor you can think of there. So I think as this entire system is going into a terminal crisis, he's probably feeling that, but he doesn't see that they're, the masses are outside of it. The masses are not attached to this system of academic prestige and all of this sort of stuff. You know, they're, they desire something else. Um, yeah. I would say, I would say that he would not see himself as part of the establishment though. Well, 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 let me just say this. You see whether he sees himself. No, yeah. Yeah, let me just, uh, yeah, I think, I think what Joe was saying, where he objectively is, you know, not how he necessarily projects himself. He is, I would, I would say, you see, it's, uh, see, university, let me, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. See, universities are not just colleges like we used to think of them. Universities are now interwoven into institutions and networks yeah. of power. Especially these, like the top ones, oh, yeah. like MIT, oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. Harvard, 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 Stanford, yeah. University yeah. of Chicago. Yeah. I mean, these are, when we talk about the state, we're, we're really talking about networks of institutions and strategic mm -hmm. individuals. Chomsky is a strategic dissident within the establishment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, he's, they cannot, you know, in other words, let me put, he is not somebody that any nation would discard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he yeah, is, yeah, he's yeah. just, and so when he goes from this academic thing, which he stayed in while he was doing his political and international thing, oh, but he's still doing all that other scientific work. Right, right, and like, right. I mean, it's amazing. And I'll tell you, if he just stayed there, we would have nothing to talk about today. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And even just that is such a rich source of knowledge. I know I learned a great deal just listening to him. So you can't, I mean, no, no ruling class would easily discard a person of this magnitude intellectually and scientifically. So they couldn't just say, oh, fuck him, when he started critiquing US policy in Latin America, the war in Vietnam, and so on. But they they tried to ignore him, but he's so goddamn persistent. He kept on it until you're right, when, when the crisis hit, which it has, like we see, they have to say, man, we gotta listen to this guy. Because the rest of these assholes that we listening to, they don't know what the hell they talking about. Right, right, right. And so, you know, yeah, yeah, I just, I'm sorry. Yeah. I oh, go, 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 go ahead, uh, Emily and then uh, Emil. Well, I just wanted to make that I'm point sorry, that he, he is part of the establishment, but he doesn't see himself as that. See, I made that point. Well, he doesn't want you to see yeah. him as that. 
I think, oh, but, but I should, yeah. oh, I should, no, I should, wasn't I'm also sorry, because sorry. like when in 19, the his infamous, like um, the responsibility of intellectual thing. That was the 1960s. Yeah, like where he takes a quote unquote brave stance against mm -hmm. the Vietnam War, which sure, mm -hmm. okay, maybe it is to a certain mm -hmm. degree. Mm -hmm. But I feel like, I make that point because I feel like Chomsky is a model, but also like has created a whole lineage of people who think you can just be an intellectual and belong to the elite without actually your life world being committed to the people like this thing of that you believe your knowledge even if you're an intellectual there's nothing wrong with being an intellectual mm -hmm. but that you think that both the creators of knowledge and history aren't the people you can be separated from it mm -hmm. which i think is like a big thing i got because i i always knew chomsky's name but i never knew who he was mm -hmm. and then when i finally then i was like okay if i heard his name so much i might as well check him out because doctors like mm -hmm. you should check him out and i was so effing bored like and <laughs> and then when i realized that he purposely like wants to yeah. be rational that's just like yeah. i just find that very anti-human like i don't know this whole thing of let's just be the most rational we can be but that's not mm -hmm. the point of that's someone who sees who sees the production of knowledge as separate from the purpose of changing the world for people and but even like his even his i just think now he's definitely i think his analysis of now i was reading the big article i read was him talking about trump supporters and it was actually just done in January 2022, he did an interview with Truthout, I think, about mm -hmm. the January 6th, mm -hmm. um, what happened on January 6th. But yeah, he basically says, he's like, we're in a crisis because if the US can't get it together, the world's gonna die. You know, you know he, that's his perspective. Right, he's like, the right. US is like, he's like, if the US like goes to the far right, we're screwed. The whole world is screwed, humanity's screwed. Right, right. And he also has this idea where he's like, he just straight up says he just like Gerald Horn. He's like, well, the so-called founding fathers were white supremacists and patriarchal. Yeah, he's gone full blown like just complete liberal. And actually, I found it really different from even his 1967 piece. He's definitely changed for that time. But I think the key though is like I feel like the key thing that I took away was also even from his like his essay um the responsibility of intellectuals he keeps saying this thing of like oh the truth is important we need like an intellectual has to pursue the truth and expose lies but you read the whole which is like yeah okay true we agree with that but the the thing that he misses is and i think it reflects a larger pattern of these kind of intellectuals who are just part don't either don't realize or are comfortable with actually going along with the ruling class is he doesn't identify for what purpose, mm. like truth for what, for freedom? Mm -hmm. Or is it just truth because truth in and of itself, facts for facts in and of itself. And, <laughs> and I feel like that's the key difference because I think it also, it, I think that the re, him missing that is also why nowadays he can't properly even define the difference between a progressive in the 60s versus people who call themselves progressive in 2022, mm. but aren't quote-unquote progressive but on the actually the enemy of the people mm -hmm. like and you know i feel like that's his i think i was trying to i was trying to analyze his framework and how he could go from like like be a dissident but at the same time be so anti-american people basically but yeah sorry i mean i talk too long yeah i mean i think his interpretation of truth really comes from a very um singular individual lens you can't see a greater truth. 
Like when I think of postmodernism, I think of him as like the figurehead of this. Interesting, although he would say he's not. Sure. He had a big, a very famous debate with Michel Foucault, yeah. who himself is the uh, figurehead of post, one of the figureheads of postmodernism. But go ahead, sir. Sure, I mean, I and the other I thing, but just to be clear, uh, he he would differ with postmodernism first on the question of truth, mm-hmm. where the postmodernists would say there is no truth on the question he would say there is on the question of science postmodernism for all kinds of reasons be it feminism be it uh, racial identity rejects science as enlightenment the reason they call it postmodernism they call it anti-modernism because it rejects truth it rejects science it rejects um, the whole western t- tradition as racist, sexist, and white male constructed. That, I just want to. That's uh, one way to interpret it, I think. Uh, and, I no, think but that's him. That's, yeah, yeah. I, I get that. And I think part of what makes him successful is he's able to, and whether or not he truly believes this or not is another question, but to posit himself as, a, as an alternative, but, you know, absolutely making a middle ground between these two sides. Uh, where we would say, I mean, you can't really stand still on a moving train. You know, the, um, the motion of the world isn't such that you have to take a side. There isn't this middle ground that you believe actually exists. And playing the part of assuming that that's a possibility only helps the entrenched position you're already in in a society that's in decay and destroying the rest of the world. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think of like how he, because I think he also talked about how Trump was the only public. Uh, figure in America that's speaking out against war. Um, so it's, it's interesting that from where he came from of protesting the Vietnam War, which clearly was taking a side, he's now decided that Trump, who he now also seems to think is an anti-war figure, needs to be opposed at all costs. You know what I'm saying? Um, but there's this logic to it. Uh, wait, hold it, hold it. Trump, he hates Trump. He feels that the whole Republican Party is a da- the most dangerous party that ever existed in history because of its climate denial position. But on this one thing, he said Trump, or something to the effect. Now, what Trump said, we can't get it straight because Trump can talk out of both sides of his mouth. But Trump said something to the effect where he president, uh, the Russians would have never invaded or Ukraine. And so Chomsky took that to mean that of all Western state statesmen, Trump was the only one that could have prevented this war. But that's not sure. right. And mm-hmm. if, I think from our perspective, that is the question. War and peace is the Absolutely. question. Absolutely. So for him to say that this is and you know not a, a deal breaker, you know, this is a I don't know, like like to hear him describe sort of the the Russian invasion. And explain and give all the detailed ways of why this would be uh, understandable and, um, you know, basically all the reasons why the Russians did it. But then at the end, say, well, but, uh-huh. you know, they're not basically, I don't think he thinks Putin or Russians are human. I don't think he thinks, you know, <laughs> so well, less a second. Yeah, you're right. Because you're giving, you're giving all these two reasons why you would respond in this way, but then you say, oh, you can't do it. You know, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it, it's, um, yeah, I think. That's the gist of what I'm getting at is that he wants a positive position that doesn't actually exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, uh, Nuri and then Jeremiah. 
Um, and then Caleb. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, I feel like it was interesting reading Chomsky because he has so many articles posted on his website and stuff. But yeah, on, like on Substack. On his no, just on his website. Oh, on his like, website. He like basically what like sixty years yeah. of yeah. of productivity. But I think something that sort of stood out to me, and I would agree with your analysis, because he basically defends the student movement, and I think like when he's against the war in Vietnam, like he sees it primarily as like. I don't know, sort of the white young students and what they represent as basically the hope for American society. And I feel like it's just an interesting point of departure, um, like as opposed to seeing the civil rights movement or like the world movement as central to the movement of humanity. It's more that, yeah, like it's led by the hope of these young students. Um, and even like within like about the university stuff like a lot of his analysis I think is like oh like what is the function of the university in a time of crisis and stuff like that and he like takes the stance that like I don't know like faculty members like should like be committed to truth like they should like fight back against certain things like he's against like the growing administrative like capacity and stuff like that but I think it just shows like the weakness that comes when you center your world and your life in I think the purely intellectual or like the academic process first. Yeah. Yeah. And then because even when he talks about like, he he's able to see some things. Like I think when he was talking about Trump, he like is acknowledging that basically Trump was able to win despite being in some ways a political outsider because he was channeling, I guess, like the evangelicals and the climate deniers and then also like the disaffected working class. Cause he does talk about the crisis that comes about because of deindustrialization. Like he's able to see certain economic shifts that are impacting the way that people think. But I think it's almost like he's seeing it, yeah, like from an external view of like, okay, these systems are moving, these things are happening, and not from like the actual like life world of the people and why that's the critical thing that I think has to come first. And through that, like if you look at the people first, like if you take them seriously first, from that, you can get a more honest intellectual trajectory. And I'm not saying that like you shouldn't look at systems or like all the things that Chomsky is like looking at are bad, but mm -hmm. I feel like it's what happens when one takes priority clearly over the other. Um, yeah, because I think reading him, like it's not even that everything that he's saying is bad. Mm -hmm. Like actually I think there are very, like there are some useful things, but there's yeah like there are some assumptions that i think have never fully been challenged for him yeah. Yeah. because of like the way that he has lived and what he just sees in his daily life and i feel like that's sort of typical of a lot of university professors where they want to have hope in the youth but because or they want to have hope in people but all they see every day is just like young college students mm -hmm. who are like being indoctrinated into like this woke stuff mm -hmm. and so they're like oh this is the hope for the future and it's like mm -hmm. no it's like Young people, like there's hope in youth, there's hope in children, but it's not this. Go <laughs> ahead. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, there's a good amount of comments on Chomsky, but just to to add to the conversation, I think I was trying to process also like why are we talking about Chomsky, <laughs> and um, but I think what you the way you framed it of what what happens when this kind of mind meets the crisis and, trying to get it. and also that it's not that we're yeah like some we're like trying like, chom like cancel chomsky or anything but that there's something you can learn from 
actually the it's not just the intellectual but also the political strategy that he has committed himself to of you know this whole elite strategy that you talked about and um yeah just to i think agree with with what others are saying it was interesting listening to like this podcast of mm -hmm. him mm -hmm. where he was like someone asked him about this whole yeah the question of the multipolar world yeah and i don't, I don't he didn't sound totally opposed to it from what i could tell mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the way that he responded mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. he was like okay you know first of all he was like Russia or what Putin did was like both criminal and stupid because he's uniting mm -hmm. like he's I don't know like united Europe with the United States but then he was also acknowledging that you know the global south and China are not on board with this project but he still and I was trying to figure out if this was just a, a sort of like one example of like a larger trend or if this was just like a con like a specific conversation where he took this position but it was very clear that his the way he was positioning the the as you the decisive actors in this whole unfolding world situation was Europe. What decisions will Europe make in relation to China? Well, what decisions will Europe make in relation to the US? And I was like trying to figure out like why is like is this is it just because like that's just what his mind went to at the time or does it represent something larger you know, it's even weird because yeah. he even i think it got framed as like the atlanticist vision versus like the eurasian vision and it's like yeah. what is that atlantic i don't know but, is that the way you, you pose yeah it? like basically like america and europe but he's seeing america as coming out of europe um and i feel like you can also see it because he really likes um basically referring back and back to like William von Humboldt who like was the first right. founder of like the modern university and like that idea of learning and even like I think something else that made me think was like when he was talking about climate change and he sees climate change as basically like an existential problem which in theory should I think unify the world but yet he like almost despairs when yeah. he was like oh when Trump or like the U.S. didn't ratify the climate stuff it left leadership to China like how devastating is that? <laughs> like how horrible. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there's there's a it's a weird, it's a weird like almost cognitive dissonance because the way he talks is yeah, the way he talks is so dry and analytical. And as you it's like it's an intentional thing that he does. Mm -hmm. But when you read the headlines that come out of these interviews and speeches, they're the most hyperbolic things you can imagine. Yeah. It's like very that is and that is the hysterical thing, I guess, that you were talking about. And I was trying to, I was also trying to understand like why, like why is there that weird juxtaposition as well? Um and I think there there's a comment here from Jasper. Mm -hmm. Um which I can read out, but sort of, I think part of the reason why also it's important to talk about this, like the this whole question of civilization, what is your frame of reference, is not like to sort of have this kind of like woke thing where you're just acknowledging Black people for the sake of acknowledging Black people, <laughs> but it is because it's almost like to understand, yeah, like as others have been saying, to understand the potential even of white people, mm -hmm. of like white, mm -hmm. like working class or like all of these depressed people in this country, you first have to understand like what is it that was like produced by 
like the Black Freedom Movement, mm -hmm. and the most, like the most oppressed people, like were like section of the working class in the country. What is it that they were able to produce, and what does that tell you about the capacity of like all people? But also, even if you're talking about the, you know, this potential nuclear Armageddon, which is yeah, like we've talked about, like there is a like a real threat of mm -hmm. like nuclear war, mm -hmm. but. You know, is your response just to basically like issue out these like almost hysterical warnings, or is your response something more akin to the Bandung movement, which mm -hmm. was like faced with the possibility of nuclear war at the beginning of the Cold War? What like what the leaders of these countries did was to say, our countries, which represent the vast majority of humankind, can throw our way towards peace. And and I think that like it's yeah it's not this whole like woke thing but it's like to give first of all to recognize that like if we're talking about the future of humanity like we should talk about the future of humanity which means like ultimately this vision of whether it's the world house or like world democracy as Du Bois was envisioning we have actually not just like the sole privileging of what like elites in the West say, but actually mm -hmm. like the presence of humanity and like what are the aspirations of, you know, that broader conception of like how, how the like actual ordinary masses of people and their representatives in like whatever state that they um, are represented by, like what are those aspirations and how can that actually shape, yeah, the future of humankind, which is ultimately what Chomsky is concerned with. And um, so, yeah, the, I, those are just some of my thoughts. But those, it was, um, it was interesting because they also asked him this like one podcast about like why did he make certain like why did he take certain positions mm -hmm. on like different like you know um, like di different like international conflicts and wars that the U.S. is involved in, and he was like my like he was like I proceed from a basic premise of like whatever is best for like human welfare and human uplift. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. But I think it's like, like a sort of the crux of the issue is it's like, as an intellectual, it's not just that you are trying to act like there is a kind there is a moral dimension, I think, to the way he proceeds, but also part of what mm -hmm. makes your voice significant and why we've been also thinking about this question of like, sociology of science is like part of the role is to know the people and not just to proceed from this yeah like as others have been saying this kind of like top ultimately what is a kind of top-down thing um because yeah like the way that he talked about the threats to america and like as Nuri was saying like he's able to talk about a lot of the cri like the depth of the crisis and you know he talks about like deaths of despair even some of the things that were mentioned you know in the vision statement mm -hmm. but then he just goes in this like complete direction of like like because of this the white masses are turning to irrationality right. they cannot be reasoned with at all they're turning to essentially fascism and like what trump is doing is essentially yeah the threat of fascism um which would be even more catastrophic but but yeah there, there's also some some good comments um, which I can read, but uh, yeah, Jasper, uh, Jasper Thomas is saying, uh, Chomsky definitely does a lot of work in different fields, but seemingly doesn't study the interplay between the fields he studies. Um, 
and that there is a movement for quote citational justice of black people and other marginalized people that is not very radical at this point. So I'm wondering what the difference between this and the litmus test against Chomsky is that we discussed earlier. In a couple of generations, the Chomskyites uh, will be citing only black trans women with lived experience of homelessness, but does this matter? Um, and he says Chomsky is just tailing the Democrats with respect to the lesser evil voting. Um, oh, uh, another comment from Virginia Cotts, who's saying, hello, free school. How beautiful to see so many young people gaining tools that will serve them well through their whole lives. I was lucky enough to, to learn from Tony, Jack O'Dell, and Bob Rhodes, who taught philosophy, history, and political economy, respectively. That was a half century ago at Antioch in DC. If I lived in Philly, I'd be there every week. Thank you, Saturday Free School, for being available to me online. And then Todd Doherty says, to be fair to Chomsky, his focus on, quote, America needing to be the center of change is derived from his long running mantra that as an American, he can only speak to the doings of our ruling class. He, he often says, quote, I can't bring about change in X country as a citizen of the USA. Mm -hmm. uh, go ahead. Uh, Do you want to respond? To no, no, no. We'll, we'll, come, we'll, we'll come back around to it. I'm still gathering my thoughts. Okay. But I think it's interesting because I feel like this conversation resurfaced a lot of my old memories about Chomsky. It was very, it was a personal hero of mine for a long time. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. called myself a Chomsky socialist for a while. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Nobody well, ever knew it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle didn't even know. Well, I kept it very down low. I didn't really <laughs> but it, it was interesting because I think it's because it wasn't just like I think there is an attraction, at least mm -hmm. the people, young people I was around to Chomsky. Because I mean, part of the thing is that he does so much of the thinking for you. I mean, he has all these he citations, <laughs> he has all these like frameworks, and he's also. I thought it was kind of cool that he was not very charismatic because I like the fact that he could say these things, say very rationally, and it almost felt like, oh, I'm learning from him and I can interpret my way. And because I feel like this also prompts a question of just like who is doing the thinking now for people, for like the masses of people, not just for young people, but also about like who are people trained to, to like, you know, represent their thinking and their thought, and also like what are the potentials for the future? Because I don't think thinking is just something where you know you do personally, but it's also constantly, you know, through self-reflection, through what you read, through people you know. Um, I think there's a convenience in turning through someone like Chomsky, but also like the question of just who else are people turning to? Like why is someone like Tucker Carlson also rising too? I think um, yeah. Yeah, just thinking back to that time as well, it's I don't know how to put it, but I feel like it's, I think it is an important question because there is so much room for, I think, thinking that either misguides you or takes you down to a different path that isn't just, like, what are the ideas that are important now? What are the questions that have to be asked now? I think people have this sort of sense that I want to do with something good, but I want to do something. I want to do something that feels like right now. And the urgency of that pair with, you know, thinking already being done for, you as a person, then what else is there for actually something that points you towards humanity versus actually just thinking about what you think is the most correct way of approaching things? I don't know if I put it correctly, but mm -hmm. it's 
That's a very good yeah. point. To have a rationally consistent position that is not connected to the masses of people. So you have the right position rationally or logically, yeah. but it is not resonating or not connected to people. Mm -hmm. What have you done? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Can, uh, can I just say one thing? And then Dwight, just, this is a very important point that you make. To have somebody that thinks for you is really convenient. I always like that myself. <laughs> uh, you know, which I I could have somebody to do the heavy lifting for me, and he does that heavy lifting. But I think, let me ask you this, um, uh, Caleb. Do you think, or can you, or anybody, can you see a point at which he began to change, where he becomes hysterical and uh, frightened about the future, mm -hmm. and that confident that confidence that he uh, displays kind of uh, did you see it? Was, was that perceptible? I feel like it's a good question. I don't know if I can really answer that fully, but I do. Something I've noticed too is that I think he does follow the unconsciously or not. He follows the trends of the hysteria that's already happening all around. America as well, like with Trump, um, with, you know, going for Biden, with this sort of sense of there's an emergency, so you have to do something. So you know, we have to focus on the two lesser two leading candidates. Um, I guess my question is also like why, like why Chomsky has deteriorated so much. Like, where was there ever a potential for him ever in that his history? But also just then who are, who is. Like who are the Trump people looking up towards Trump? Like basically seeing seeing themselves as following in his legacy. I feel like I don't know. I feel like that's always a question that I've been having. Just like what for the people for the young people who really do want to transform society? Like who are they turning to? What are they thinking of as you know, they're inheriting a legacy of? Like is it just someone like Chomsky? Is someone you know even all the young people still reading Marx now? There is something that young people think they're inheriting, but it's not entirely. The case there's always some caveat that I feel is being touched on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was listening to Chomsky, uh, <clears throat> and you were talking about his moral dimension. He, um, democracy is very important to Chomsky, and um, and also violence. He's, uh, I think that's one of his uh, appeals. He's a, He's talked about that whoever uses violence, they have to justify it. Uh, and, and I think that sometimes, uh, to be fair to Chomsky, uh, you were talking about his, uh, his race. I think he, one time he was talking about um, black and white versus uniting. He talked about that. And uh, uh, I, I think also, you know, he was he was raised in the 30s, born in 1928. <clears throat> and and I was reflecting on how how the context of a time a person's thinking, mm -hmm. you gotta understand the person's thinking is often reflected of where they grew up. And, you, and he was born in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. His mother was from New York City. Uh and and he he talked about how he was um he was influenced by an uncle who had a fourth grade education. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, uh, so he did have, and, and so at that time, he did have some connection to the people, you know, as we say. And as time goes on, as a, as a lot of uh, academic thinkers, a lot of the white thinkers, particularly in the civil rights movement when we were younger, they were disconnected, this black thing, they were de de disconnected from it in a lot of ways. And so that's reflected from what you were talking about, how he doesn't mention that. But uh, somehow, um, uh, you were, and I, I'm bringing a lot of things, you're talking about analytic philosophy, you're talking about anarchism, you know, people take that term very loosely, but what he meant by it, you know, usually when people think about anarchism, they think about no government. Yeah. But what he meant by it was that, uh, and as you pointed out, the anti-communist part mm -hmm. was the workers, you know, in other words, not right. the state ownership. Yeah. And, 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 and for him, that meant more of a dogmatic uh, uh, authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, uh, he, 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 he's appealing on a moral, if you want to look at democracy, because he, when, one of the things he's mad at Trump about is that Trump took away the parliamentary procedure, like the, 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 the January 6th thing. He says, well, so, so for Trump, for, for a man like uh, Chomsky, democracy, was important, but the violence, you know, that, and I, and I think we have to, to be fair, whenever you're talking about something, you always have to be fair about their position because mm -hmm. you can always distort their position and put up what we call in philosophy, a straw man and destroy his argument. And if he was here, he would say, hey, wait a minute, that's not what I'm saying. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, Tony, wait a minute, I'm not saying what I'm saying. You know? So that's why you have to be fair to, to the man. And I'm, I mean, I'm not, you know, and so, uh, because because I do see a, a moral dimension to him that I that I really respect. And so, wait, wait, wait. what is the moral dimension, please? Anti-violence. Well, 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 yeah, in some ways, but 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 in some ways, he's sometimes not pragmatic because when he talked about violence, he, he said, "When we when is it justified?" He gave an example. He says he gives this example, and I like I said on YouTube, you know, he says, "If I have a kid." And they're running, they, 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 you know, they're running in the street, and I grab them and pull them. Well, you know that's 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 justified. But now, how does you how do you how do you justify violence when it comes to war? You know, and that's a that's a philosophical, you know, do 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 you do do you intervene in war? What do you intervene when somebody, uh, uh, you know, it's all kind of uh, you know, say like if. Uh, the, the, the Nazis are, are going against the Jews. Do you intervene in, in Pakistan? Do you have to? Do you intervene in Afghanistan when the Taliban is fighting? How how do you how do you measure that? Do you do you intervene in China when when Hong Kong? You know you know so so these are, are are moral questions. These are moral dilemmas that you have different points of view. But I mean so so he's talking about when you decide that who is the one to decide the violence. Of course, his example of the kid is almost like, hey, we all agree with that. But the difficult ones mm -hmm. are when you have countries. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what, uh, so, so basically what I'm saying, I'm saying that, uh, that
that uh, I, 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 when people think about anarchy, they have to be correct on, on the type of anarchy that he's talking about. Because he does make some sense. He does appeal to democracy, and democracy is a very difficult um, concept to get your, your, your mind around because there's some, you know, like democracy is always bad if, if, if you, <laughs> If you're on this side, it's not. If it doesn't favor me, democracy is no good. Because you know, you group of people voted for slavery, and you vote, and then we voted for not, you know, not having. But that's democracy. That's the evil of democracy. You know, that's what. So, so, uh, uh, but, 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 Trump, you think that out of all, like you said, the better of two evils, right? You know, sort of that. He said that's better than saying, you know, that's right for government. So, uh, I guess what I'm, I mean, I'm saying a lot. But um, I'm saying because I'm taking what all you said. But I think as a as a philosopher, teaching philosophy, <laughs> you know, you have to, you know, and then when you when you engage in you know analytic philosophy, deals with when you said truth, when you're talking about truth, and you said when you're talking about postmodernism, you know, to get objective. You know what, what you're saying. You know how you objective to as opposed to subjective. What subject? But um, um, what I was going to say was um, what was I say? Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, the point being is that uh, that's, that the ideas that Chomsky brings on uh, they, they, he he raises a lot of moral dilemmas, and of course you guys have uh, pointed them out quite well. But um, but 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 I had to interject something. <laughs> oh, analytic philosophy. I mean, because <laughs> I saw Sarah Finn go to look and look it up. Analytic philosophy, maybe. No. Anyway, when he said something about analytic, but analytic philosophy about truth. In other words, it was a method of trying to 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 and and remember, he's a linguist. Right. Language. So when you try to define terms like freedom and all these, so 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 analytic philosophy wants to wants to go to words and terms to make it clear. So 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 when I'm saying freedom, you're thinking one thing, and I'm not thinking one thing. So when you're having a discussion, you want to be clear on what on what the terms are. So analytic philosophy attempts to do that. Just just as when you were talking about anarchism. And, and her, you know, like somebody saying, oh, I think of anarchism this way. Yeah. And you're talking about two different things. Yeah, well said. And so let's, let's come back to that. We're going to come back to analytic philosophy <coughs> and some right. other points. Because right. I think this is a very important point that you raised. The moral dimension, the moral dimension. which is seldom raised. I, I don't know that he even raised. But any, let me go to Samir. We'll come back to this way. Um, <clears throat> I uh, wanted to echo what Caleb said because I was a huge Chomsky disciple right before I found the free school, actually, probably 2013 to 2014. And, and so is uh, Norman Finkelstein. Yeah. Was. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very significant. Yeah. But like Norman Finkelstein and Chomsky were two of my heroes before I found the free school because uh, they were very uh, anti Israel and mm -hmm. I was involved in SJP. And that's sort of how I became uh, radicalized, became an anarcho syndicalist, uh, started attending protests. And I was just absorbing all of his uh, lectures 
And so I wanted to like echo, I really agreed with what Caleb was saying. Caleb probably would have said it better than me um, about how I liked his non charisma because there's nothing aesthetic. It was all substance. I like the fact that he was always uh, citing people because it was arguments from authority and from uh, logic and um, it's uh, yeah, the, the argument of force must be justified based on apparent authority over the children. That is justifiable authority versus unjustifiable authority which is different from other anarchists where there is no justifiable authority ever. So that would be uh, ridiculous. Um, but he has some uh, weak points uh, that I just wanted to go over quickly, reflecting on as I've grown past Chomsky. Um, like for instance, uh, as I became more interested in Marxism, I was looking back at Chomsky, what does he have to say about dialectics? And he says, um, Basically, I, I don't understand it. I don't. I don't like reading it. I don't want to understand it. And then um, there was uh, a lecture I was listening to when I was uh, when I was uh, you know a long time ago. And he says on the JFK assassination, you know, so what if it was a conspiracy? You know, who cares? You know, what does it matter? And I was I was kind of like you know a little like uh, back then a little thrown off. I was like I, I sort of care. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's just uh, weird that someone committed to the truth would be say would say something like that. And I, just, I still don't understand those two statements. Yeah. 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 But I think he does appeal to a certain archetype of college student or young person who becomes radicalized or interested in politics um, outside of like the two-party system. And I think I like what Dwight brought up because I think it is important to see him fully because like I think recently he was he's been pretty brutally attacked for what he said about Russia, which <laughs> he, <laughs> I think someone asked him like, what do you think about the unprovoked attack on Ukraine by Russia? And he was like, of course it was provoked. Otherwise they wouldn't keep calling it an unprovoked invasion. <laughs> and, um, and I think what I've gathered is he seems pretty inconsistent at times in a way that I don't really understand, but I do think he has stood up for truth, like in his defense of Julian Assange, et cetera. And, um, and I think when he does that, it's being noticed by people who are otherwise propagandized the other direction where like, for example, I think a lot of DSA members really love Chomsky mm -hmm. and so, and they're also very anti-Russia, anti-Putin. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in that way, it is important that we're talking about him first of all and trying to understand who he is, what he represents um, because it does affect the discourse, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, some bars on. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
Um, you can go ahead. No, no, no. Oh. I was just. <laughs> well, Michelle and I, we, we were initially talking about this at Reading Terminal. And um, I forget exactly. That's why I was hoping you would remember what triggered it and what we were saying about Chomsky as such. There is, um, but that's okay. Well, maybe go to Shambhar to try to think about it. Yeah, well, I was, um, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking through the conversation going on. I think it's a, it's a very important question. We're talking about you know, the moral dimension and I haven't really studied Chomsky, but you know what, uh, I was looking up was you know uh, regarding his position with regard to the Vietnam War and so mm -hmm. on. And I think the first uh, statement from him came up, I think in the in the mid seventies or something. And I was thinking of how you know at that point, post seventies, there were numerous um, sides in America critiking the Vietnam War. I mean, you know, critiking America's involvement in the Vietnam War. And there were um, there were you know the student movements, and then there were all kinds of the beat generation and the counterculture movement who was also saying the same thing. And I think the student movement in Chicago to, to some extent. And, you know, and on the other hand, there was also King who was talking about it way before that in the, in, in the late sixties. And, you know, when I think about this question of the moral dimension, um, I think it's all, it's, 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 it's very uh, intricately tied to the question of self-interest. And, you know, it seems that um, there were, you know, several sections <clears throat> in America critiquing the Vietnam War, which did not really have to pay the price for taking that position. And when we talk about Chomsky today, it just seems that, you know, yes, he did come with, I mean, you know, he did, he did, uh, he was produced in, you know, the anti-war movement in America, but I think there were more than one anti-war movement in America, and one that was led by King and the civil rights movement, and the other that followed subsequently when, uh, yeah, you know, when it was already a popular position to take. And you know, it seems that what Chomsky, I mean, if we understand, if I mean, when we look at Chomsky today, it seems that you know he he is in a way he has been co-opted by the establishment. I mean, he is not one of the, like the fact that everyone knows about him, the fact that everyone, uh, especially in, in the university setting and all, everyone looks up to his his positions and his ideas, what Caleb and some were also saying, the fact that he does all the thinking out for you and it is reflected in his popularity. This seems that you know, he, is, he is clearly someone who is not easily dismissed. He is someone who has been accepted by the establishment. And when we talk about the, the moral position of, of, I mean, the moral cost of an unpopular position to take, I think this is the question we usually come back to, like, you know, what is the price that one pays? And it seems that, you know, Chomsky represents the, the section of anti-imperialist thought and movement in America, which never really had to had to pay that price, which the civil rights movement did. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm just thinking about this whole conversation. I mean, I think, um, well, first, you know, this whole thing on the social location, 
I mean, it is true that because um, I was also at one point, you know, influenced by him. You know, I've read about him also. But anyway, so it's true that his his. Huh? <laughs> I asked her, was she influenced by him? She said no, and she said it's a man thing. Yeah, it might be true, man. It might be true. It might, might be true, <laughs> but. But uh, anyway, so so I think I think socially, as uh, Dwight was saying, like he you know he talks about that he came up in the 30s and 40s, and he also was you know he was part of this ethnic wide Jewish community. I think his dad might have been an immigrant or something or a family immigrant, so they had like you know left wing Yiddish newspapers and stuff that they used to read. That's how I got into this anarchist syndicalist on the thought. But then you know as he he I think he's part of that generation of these ethnic whites Jews that then you know went to school had a lot of social mobility all went up then almost entirely left the working class or at least became very privileged layers of the working class right. so that probably affected him in terms of social location but also you know then this point is I mean yeah I definitely we have to be fair in him with him so when he talked about anarcho-syndicalism or his idea of anarchism he's talking about creating like a workers democracy through trade unions. I mean, at least that's my understanding. Mm -hmm. Trade unions kind of replacing the state through trade union action. But see, this is the thing, what I wanted to say is that I think that one of his weaknesses, I feel, at least in politics, I can't speak that much about his science and philosophy, is that I think that he, usually whenever a concept is brought up, like such as dialectics, he'll be like, I don't understand dialectics. Whenever people use it, I, I think he said, whenever people use it, I just translate it as thinking clearly. And then similarly, I was looking at something you said recently, someone asked him, what do you think about it? How do you define imperialism? And he's like, I don't think getting into the definitions of these terms is very helpful. Yeah, but so what that means is that de facto, he's essentially working off of the, as you said, classical liberal assumptions. So when we get to his ideas about, for example, I think it's definitely clear when you talk about democracy, like why is he anti-communist? Why, you know, why does he not really consider any of these revolutionary experiments to be experiments in socialism or worker states? Because his idea of anarcho-syndicalism is operating off of this assumption of liberal democracy. How can we build a liberal, through liberal democracy, liberal democratic procedures and processes, build a worker state, which is basically untenable because you're talking about the rule of the bourgeoisie and the contradiction to have that and the workers at the same time. And probably you can make a similar argument about his idea about violence, uh, probably if you get into it. Um, and so, but that that allows him to operate within the confines of the academy because he's still working, even though he may come to different conclusions than other people in the academy, uh, which may make him more of a dissident and more radical, but the fundamental assumptions about the things like democracy are the same and at the same time like i for example have never really heard him criticize the academy in fact he talks about he defends it as being meritocratic like i remember once someone asked him about people like who questioned the official 9-11 story and why were certain people removed from their jobs or whatever didn't get tenure and he's like no those people were not serious academics they didn't do all the stuff you had to do they didn't produce good work they didn't do committee work etc um, and so he he does argue it's meritocracy, and I'll, naturally he would. I mean, he's at the top of it, so he's not going to be like this thing is, you know. <laughs> and so then, consciously or unconsciously, he is used for, by U.S. soft power to be like, okay, we have dissidents, dissidents are at the top of our academic structure, etc. And that's something that's something that comes across when you talk to people in other parts of the world. I mean, they see like, okay, America has a lot of problems, but you have a person like Chomsky who's very prominent. 
and uh, and uh, so I think that's a significant thing. And um, yeah, I mean that's how I see it fitting together, right? So the dude's assumptions which are at the heart of the academy. He's working off those, coming to other conclusions. I mean, at times he does take progressive positions, like okay, he believes in. He's accepting the liberal idea of free speech, and he sees that they're violating it when it comes to Julian Assange. There's hypocrisy, so he'll he's on the whatever committee to free Assange, which I mean I can respect that. Or similarly with Palestine, he's talking about international law that's being violated. Okay, I could respect that, but it's just limits, you know, to how far it can go when you're remaining in these assumptions. Especially at a time of enormous crisis right, and right, right. transition. Yeah, I mean, those assumptions now are in crisis, right? That's yes, the thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's when you're asking when did he become more like, you know, yeah. whatever term you want but to I use. Think the assumptions, I think he clearly exposed the assumptions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that he operated on mm -hmm. and how those assumptions might no longer apply. Right. Yes. Right, right, right. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it is, there, there are no, uh, enormous points of existential crisis, climate change and nuclear war. Uh, but then what do you do? I mean, do you, you, you know, you go in your room and put your covers over your head. I mean, I don't know how you guys, Dwight, how you respond to listening to him, you know, with the beard and, and everything else going on, but I'm sick. Even talking about him, I want to go home. Well, I usually do after three school, but <laughs> but put my covers over my head and say fuck it. I mean, isn't that's? I have to say that's that's what I take away from it. It's nothing that can be done. Listen to those. We have no way out. And he he makes. By the way, just a small thing. He makes this dichotomy between reason and moral. Capacity that reason. This is what he said. If I'm wrong, somebody correct that human reason has led humanity to where we are. That human reason has this predisposition to control and hence destroy. And there is that morality bends to rational uh, 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 requirements. Um, you know, because he is a philosopher of mind, of reason. And so he says, he dichotomizes reason and moral, morality. And reason trumps in this situation, which might be his way of saying, I'm not certain, because at this point he's not so, you know, rational. He might be saying that uh, the Enlightenment has gotten us where we are, and there is nothing in the um, intellectual, moral uh, universe to control this inevitable outcome. I have a I have a question maybe also because I don't I don't I'm not familiar with any of his actual like linguistic stuff but from what you were describing if what his contribution to that field was is that he was critiquing the notion that all language is conditioned yes. by a certain culture. culture and stuff mm -hmm. but 
simultaneously and and so he was saying like there is some kind of deeper structure in the human brain which gives rise to mm -hmm. language across different cultures mm -hmm. but if part of what we're also talking about is Chomsky himself is proceeding from certain conditions from certain or from certain assumptions which are con like conditioned by certain things so is, is there like a I don't know if I'm phrasing it the right way but isn't there a contradiction in his whole like the fact that he does proceed from what you could call cultural assumptions or assumptions of particular values but then also his contribution has been that there is something broader which unites humanity which is given I, I don't know if that if no, no 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 that's very yeah. very important I think see this yeah. gets to his what we call structuralism yeah. I call it neo-Kantianism but that's me but you're right um but he does that he does think from the standpoint of of assumptions pre uh, imperative assumptive predicates predicates and um when he thinks about politics he's a neo i mean he's a classical liberal isn't that fair to say trying to take that to Classical yeah. liberal assumptions to radical. That's right. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. And even I would say, see this idea that reason trumps morality. That once science, that reason and science is part of the reason why we're where we are. The industrial revolution, other technologies, fossil fuels, being able to get them and use them, and then um, uh, nuclear weapons science and reason uh, and humanity uh, in the modern time is driven by reason more than morality. Some people could say, well, you know, you could take a Freudian position. Uh, the, um, the id versus, let us say, the superego or eros. And he would argue, somebody asked him this, I don't know what he would argue, but is the death or suicide drive stronger than the life drive? For example, is the drive to destruction of humanity, and this is what uh, um, Lamar was suggesting, does that trump the drive for human solidarity and love. He would say reason trumps it. And I would say he would have to argue that there is no way out of this crisis. And I'm trying to figure out well, why are you talking to young people like that? You're telling them there's no way out. And he is saying that. He's saying we are a hundred seconds from an end to all of this. A hundred seconds. What the fuck are you saying that for? But anyway, go ahead, Dwight. What does that have anything to do with where he is in his life now? Well, let me let Dwight come in and then, yeah. Maybe it does, right. but I don't think so. I think it has to do with his 
philosophy and ideology. In, in a time of, it, my point is his whole thing, including himself personally, has collapsed in the face of this crisis because that's why you have to counterpose him to King and Baldwin or Du Bois. They never thought like that. I don't think they could think like that. They did not put all of their um, uh, money, all of their shit in the basket of reason. <laughs> all their eggs. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. I needed help. All their, all their eggs in one basket. In fact, you know, and this is the civilizational pre, uh, procedure, if you will. There is another way, and if there is another way, there is a way to fight. And he is arguing, well, the only fight is to convince those who think rationally and scientifically to change. And you're right, he is a part of the establishment, uh, dissident though he may be about different policy. He is a part, because his ultimate strategy is to influence the establishment. Establishment or rationally thinking and to show them he it is a deconstruction of reason in the interest of reason. Or just deconstructing a rationality in the interest of rationality. Go ahead, Dwayne. Well, well um, you, you were saying that he doesn't give the youth any so future. You said he doesn't give the youth any future. Is that well, that's not, I would say so. I don't know. You feel that he no, does? No, no, no. I'm just looking at something. I mean, he said he got 100, we've got 100 seconds. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> well, I'm just looking at something when he said Martin Lamar Hill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. question. Yes. He said that, uh, he mentioned climate change. Yes. He mentioned George Floyd, you know, about that. You know, he, he said, so that was his way of saying there is a future now. That's what I meant. How did he say, I don't understand. How is that the same here as a climate Well, what he meant was that people are moving. Movement. Move, activism uh, around. Activism yeah. around. <laughs> and um, now, with the question of reason, he gave an example of a bill that Biden had presented. That's right, the recent one. Yes, the recent one. Yes, fine. And, and, and he said that uh, uh, in the bill, it, and, and this is true of, of Americans, of uh, people in general, in the bill is something that is of interest to my group. But, but say I'm white, you know, there's something. And so I listen to Fox News, and and and, and I listen to people say that it's going to raise money, et cetera, and I'm against it. And then if you ask me, did I read the bill? I say no. And so what he's pointing out is the ignorance in, in the people who, you know, they're, they're going against their own interests and they're not looking at things rationally, you know, in other words. Mm -hmm. and so and so that's, that's his point. Or listening to science. That's or listening to science, right, that's right. So, 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 so emotion drives people. So, oh, it's going to drive up, and, and, if, and, and if they were thinking rationally, say, yeah, wait a minute, I'm white. This bill is going to help me, just like Obamacare. You know, you have people who was against Obamacare because Obama 
uh, raises. You know, they say, oh, it's no good. But this bill is somebody, if I have a heart, if I have a problem with my heart, no matter if I'm black, white, Chinese, or whatever, it's in my benefit. But, but he's pointing out how the ignorance of, uh, of, um, of, of, uh, of many of the populace, how, how we think. And, and I think uh, a lot of people, human beings, you know, that's a, human beings do drive, a lot of times we do decide things on emotion as opposed to looking at, 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 at rational reasons why this would be good. And I think that that's, that's part of the academics that, that, that he brings out and he's aware of that. And a lot of, of course, of course, that's something that even Hume talked about, you know, well, you know, yeah, you know for centuries when he said that uh, uh, reason is a slave to our passions, you know. Mm -hmm. So all, all of these things, are, this is nothing new, but he's just, you know, bringing them to four and giving examples of how they are facing uh, society. Yeah, but so, this, you raise all the important questions here. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we, but somebody else, uh, go for it. Because I, I would like to, because you use Chomsky language. Yeah. This is a reasonable or rational point. Mm -hmm. Why would you, sure. who can think rationally, why would you oppose right. something as in your rational self-interest? Right. See, that's yeah. what he's arguing. That's right. But see, that's where all the discussion is. Mm -hmm. Once you say rational and self-interest, mm -hmm. well, then we got a question because there are many self-interests. Mm -hmm. If I am poor, hungry, and homeless, right. you know, uh, whether you say it's in my rational self-interest to support a bill yeah. that will, you know, uh, it doesn't have a, a carbon tax, but a whole number of things that will reduce carbon emission. Right. You see what I'm saying? Why would you oppose it when your life is on the line? Right. That's what he said. But let me let, me let uh, Jeremiah, then we come back. But, but I think part of what has come out in the discussion today, at least as far as I understand it, is that what happens when you, this, this as, as people have said, you put all your eggs in this basket yeah. of reasons, <laughs> right. and then right. all of a sudden you meet up with the actual like crisis of a society and of a world situation, right. 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 and then that explains why then he becomes so quote unquote irrational or emotional yeah. <laughs> because yeah. then that, that and that's why it's like you get all these headlines from it's like quoting Professor Chomsky in some interview and it's like like we are doomed and it's like this kind of like like he does have a very like doom and gloom. I don't know essence these days, which it's mm -hmm. it's not it's I don't know yeah it's not very like fun to listen to but but it, like that is kind of and that that's why I think also um, like you know King's formulation you need a tough mind and a tender heart you know you need like you need yeah like that whole thing where it's or like yeah King's idea of the sword that heals right, 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 see, right, right. you see the human the human being. See, Chomsky thinks that reason, I'll put it this way. Okay, he invokes it as a human capacity unique to human beings. But at the same time, he does, he's not a humanist philosopher. He's a rationalist philosopher. You know what I'm saying? Would you agree with that? He's not a humanist. He's not an existentialist. You know what I'm saying? 
um, he is a rationalist and he is analytic or a linguistic philosopher. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. He's a linguistic philosopher in that linguistic philosophy tries to discover the truth value of statements made by people. Isn't that, isn't that fair to say? So um, it has reduced philosophy. It has taken philosophy out of the realm of the human to the language, to the statements that philosophers and others make. But I, I find this is, I find this is the huge problem. At least I do not sense. You could say he's making moral arguments and moral choices and so on and so forth. But I find him, uh, when it comes to morality, not to want to be consistent, as consistent as he will be when it comes to reason. That's my. I, well, oh, oh, oh. there's also some interesting things. Well, I'm just trying to say that in the moral universe, hours, I'm sorry. We'll read some of the comments and then hours. I just, I just agree. I said in the moral universe, there's all kinds of dilemmas, inconsistencies. You know, whether you're Kantian or Aristotelian or utilitarian, mm -hmm. uh, the situation always, always. You know, even if you even if uh, you become a kind of say reason prevails, then then somehow you're going to come up with a moral outcome that somebody's not going to be satisfied with. Mm -hmm. So 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 uh, so it, it, if you're saying that that Chomsky uh, is strictly a rationalist, and, and, and in that sense, he has he has flaws. In that sense, but but I'm not. But I but if Chomsky was here, would he say? Would he agree with you? He, he would. He, I I would think that he would probably say. That we don't know. We don't know. Right. We don't know. Right. And this is this is this is what we're trying to figure out. Right. Why? Okay, let me shut my mouth. But go go ahead, go ahead, Jerry. We got yeah, some comments, and we'll come back to it. And then Alex. Um, yeah, Alex just adding some context. He's saying. Um, that Chomsky was deeply influenced by a professor named Guy McPherson, who was a professor who was kicked out of the University of Arizona, uh, who has gone the deepest into, into saying that the human habitat is done and cannot be saved, and that Chomsky and this professor recently did a podcast together, wow. um, and that this professor is, quote unquote, the first doomer, so it's like a kind of doom and gloom thing. Um, and then Chomsky bit on the ruling class's sublime and steady drip of nihilism uh, to promote our inaction. Uh, Say that one more time. He's saying that, uh, so Todd's saying, Chomsky bit on the ruling class's sublime and steady drip of nihilism to promote our collective inaction. Um, and I, I guess he's saying like the kind of paralysis of just like seeing everything as bleak. And then uh, Shantanu says, Thank you for this great discussion on Chomsky. It was truly very clarifying and really makes you think in terms of ideas and not merely in terms of the raw content of what uh, different political influencers say. Go ahead, Alice. I was just gonna say, um, this has been a really interesting or deep conversation, particularly because I guess referring back to what Joseph was saying earlier, 
pushes the influence that Chomsky has on the youth. And it's also interesting, and I don't know like what sections of the youth that it pulls from, yeah. uh, from our limited sample size, but it also shows how for many young people, it can seem to tell young people that the way out of this crisis is solely through reason in terms of, you know, how do I think through a problem? And this is like the rational way of like this thing leads to the next thing. And but I guess what we're getting out of this conversation is that reason is not going to be the sole thing that leads us out of this crisis. And that's why um, I think we point them out because a lot of people do look thin, but we can also see the inadequacies of um, not that we don't need reason, but that it's insufficient. And actually, I recently have been super into Tolstoy because he writes this. Um, a uh, short story, or not short story, a like short excerpt on his life um, and his quest in, in his 50s. Um, it's called A Confession. And in his 50s, he talks about how at that point he's super successful. He had written War and Peace and Anna Karenina, and he's achieved a social status um, where he's respected, where he has money, where he has anything he wants in the world, but he wants to kill himself. And the reason why is because he couldn't figure out the answer the question of um, why is worth, like, does life have meaning? Mm -hmm. And if so, what is the meaning of life? Mm -hmm. And he goes through, and it's a um, profound exploration because he goes through all the different philosophers um, preceding him and of his time. And through uh, specifically this category of logic or reason, he ends up at a place of there is no meaning to life. Mm -hmm. And he was like, oh man, then I should kill myself. But then he comes to the place where he's like, no, like people have continued to live over um, uh, thousands and thousands of years, and there's something that I'm missing, and therefore he saw that there is something missing in reason, where reason alone isn't going to answer the questions that, well, reason can answer questions of like mathematics and atoms and all that stuff, because he was like, yeah, I can find really detailed answers to these questions of uh, like biology, physics, I guess maybe, I don't know. Um, but then those, those um, equations break down when you try to examine larger questions. And it might even be that because Chomsky was trained in a certain tradition of, um, you know, breaking down particles and analyzing it, that he thinks that that same logic can be applied to larger questions of life and civilization. Uh, but eventually, uh, Tolstoy, like later on in his life, he like it's a decades-long search for him, and he turns to what he finds is faith, faith of the people. Or I guess, I guess um, uh, even Du Bois talks about like the faith of the fathers, mm -hmm. where faith is often juxtaposed with something to reason, where it's not fully rational, but mm -hmm. it is something that keeps people that in that you find what the meaning of life is. And I think that's also very similar to what um, we see with Du Bois and Baldwin and King, which is that they see both reason, but also faith. Yeah. Um, and where do you find faith in also these questions of truth? And it's interesting with Tolstoy because he had said that he turns to essentially the peasant, where yeah. he's like, there's something about the worker or the peasant where, you know, like on first assumption, he you can think like, Oh, like they're dumb, like they don't know anything, and therefore they're in the rut of life. 
But what he actually sees is no, there's something that they understand that I don't. And he essentially spends like, I don't know what happened after this, but he spends his life um, uh, trying to get closer to the peasants and to the workers and answering these deeper questions of life. Um, and I think that's very similar to what we talked about in Greek school. Uh, I think it's, I mean, Michelle and I had a conversation about this as well and other people, but I think that's also for free school, which is, it's a crisis, but it's not just a crisis of, you know, policy. There's a crisis of humanity and um, the meaning of life. Yeah, it's like what you were saying, and it reminds me of that quote where I forget the details, I feel like Jesus knows it's there, but he's like, reason tells you to reason tells you to blah 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 but then <laughs> what happened to me no no but then the moral imperative tells you to do something but even the thing he says you know there's not a lack of smart people in the world or in our society actually some the thing that's missing is the human heart mm -hmm. um, and so Reason tells you what's convenient. Yeah. Political tells you what is um, expedient. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's, yeah, that's a very important quote. There. That might be more helpful to find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but go ahead, Dwight. You wanted to respond to him. Oh, oh well, I was going to say I like what you said. Uh, uh, you bring out the idea that uh, the importance of emotion. That's not just one. She didn't say emotion. I know the, well, the importance of, of morality. Morality. But it's funny, um, that question, when you talk about Tolstoy, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes in my class I teach Camus, and he has this thing called the myth of Sisyphus. Mm -hmm. right? And in the myth of Sisyphus, he talks about how you can come to reason and say, does life have a meaning? Mm -hmm. There's a question that you brought it up. But he, but he says that imagine Sisyphus with that rock going up, you know, mm -hmm. that, that he has meaning in the rock. So, so what gives your life meaning is comes from within, you know, within, and that even if even the law of this is absurd, you know, even if you come to that, you still have you still have to give your you have to live, you have to live in spite mm -hmm. of the absurd. Because if you because if you take uh, Chomsky's view, his nihilistic view, hell, I'm just give up and shit, doomsday, like you said, put the cup. But, but, but what you're doing here now by talking, even if you think it's absurd, you're living in spite of it. Yeah. yeah. But, 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 but let me ask you a question. Okay. But is Chomsky then saving himself or his own, quote, moral integrity? But not saving humanity. He's not, he's not saving humanity. He's not. He's not saving because humanity. what he's saying, right. like like uh, Jeremiah mm -hmm. said, he's a doomsday. Mm -hmm. We're not going to save humanity from a climate meltdown or disaster. I agree. That's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. So then, why don't you shut up? That's what I mean. I, I, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Let me see what Jerry. Just a, just a quick thing, but uh, okay, the only, I think the only place I've ever heard of Chomsky before, like actually like reading him was this whole like manufacturing consent idea and like the idea that I, I haven't even read the book, but it's like the author, by the way, uh, okay. Edward Herman. 
people credit him more with the but it's kind of it's kind of funny because the way that i've seen it play out amongst like young people and i think this mm -hmm. gets to what others who are perhaps more devoted Chomsky followers have said is that it kind of the interesting thing is that it's like okay you have this idea the ruling class is manufacturing consent for war and all these other things but all it gives you in the end is kind of just this like it kind of just gives you talking points or you're just like can't you see your con your consent is being manufactured like you're also your consent is so being so manufactured but like that's like it kind of just gives you a set of talking points but no actual like one no strategy but also just no sense of well, one he yeah. establishes in that in other words that you're being lied to yes but the ruling class lies yes. and most of what they tell you about the world is a lie mm -hmm. and so it's a theory of propaganda and this fits in to his theory uh, his work in uh, linguistic philosophy that it is propaganda because it does not stand up to a truth test I, and I, I'm not I'm not discouraged I mean I think that's a that's a hell of a contribution yeah. but we're still go ahead I'm sorry no yeah I mean I, I also but we're still back to a profound problem and this is what Alice is raising from Tolstoy uh that what is the meaning of life? What the hell are we doing? And what can, what is our moral capacity yeah. as people, not just as individuals, not just as elites who, because of our university education or whatever, are capable of understanding and making rational arguments. But everybody doesn't operate on that grid. Yeah. You know, I'm, that's why the India conference is so valuable because it also raised the question of what is his, what is moral and historically right. You could make a million, and, and this is what uh, um, Michelle and I were talking about in Reading Terminal, that all rational arguments uh, militate towards a point of equilibrium. I mean, well, what is the point of equilibrium? The point of equilibrium is the point of resolution. You know, be, you know, uh, I'm not making sense. Uh, yeah. And what, what if equilibrium points, assumed equilibrium points, are no longer there? Suppose Europe is not the moral uh, intellectual hegemon of the world. I think what he is, his anxiety, yes, yeah. you can say the world is going to melt down uh, climatically, nuclear war is closer than ever before. But I think at the same time, I think what Chomsky manifests is a loss of power of the West mm -hmm. and Western intellectuals to determine the outcome of human history. Right. Yeah, because his his investment is in the West. I mean, would you disagree with that? No, no, no. And that suppose the West is no longer the hegemon. What what are we? Oh, we have to get ready to go. Well, 
Okay, this has been more than valuable. <laughs> okay, people.